Chapter One of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Clark. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter One Marseille. The Arrival. On the 24th of February, 1815, the lookout at Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde signalled the three-master, the pharaoh from Smyrna, Trieste, and Naples. As usual, a pilot put off immediately, and rounding the Chateau d'If, got on board the vessel between Cap Morgion and Rion Island. Immediately, and according to custom, the ramparts of Fort Saint-Jean were covered with spectators. It's always an event at Marseille for a ship to come into port, especially when this ship, like the Pharaoh, has been built, rigged, and laden at the old Faux-Sea docks, and belongs to an owner of the city. The ship drew on and had safely passed the strait, which some volcanic shock has made between the Calasareña and Jarro Islands, had doubled Pomègue, and approached the harbour under topsails, jib, and spanker. But so slowly and sedately that the idlers, with that instinct which is the forerunner of evil, asked one another what misfortune could have happened on board. However, those experienced in navigation saw plainly that if any accident had occurred, it was not to the vessel herself, for she bore down with all the evidence of being skilfully handled, the anchor a cockbill, the jib-boom guys already eased off, and standing by the side of the pilot, who was steering the pharaoh towards the narrow entrance of the inner port, was a young man who, with activity and vigilant eye, watched every motion of the ship, and repeated each direction of the pilot. The vague disquietude which prevailed among the spectators had so much affected one of the crowd that he did not wait the arrival of the vessel in harbour, but jumping into a small skiff, desired to be pulled alongside the pharaoh, which he reached as she rounded into La Reserve Basin. When the young man on board saw this person approach, he left his station by the pilot, and hat in hand, leaned over the ship's bulwarks. He was a fine, tall, slim young fellow of eighteen or twenty, with black eyes and hair as dark as a raven's wing, and his whole appearance bespoke that calmness and resolution peculiar to men accustomed from their cradle to contend with danger. "'Ah, is it you, Dante?' cried the man in the skiff. "'What's the matter?' "'And why have you such an air of sadness aboard?' "'A great misfortune, Monsieur Morel,' replied the young man. "'A great misfortune, for me especially. "'Off Civita Vecchia, we lost our brave Captain Leclerc.' "'And the cargo?' inquired the owner eagerly. "'Is all safe, Monsieur Morel, and I think you will be satisfied on that head. "'But poor Captain Leclerc.' "'What happened to him?' asked the owner with an air of considerable resignation. "'What happened to the worthy captain?' "'He died.' "'Fell into the sea?' "'No, sir, he died of brain fever in dreadful agony.' Then, turning to the crew, he said, "'Bear a hand there, to take in sail.' All hands obeyed, and at once the eight or ten seamen who composed the crew sprang to their respective stations at the spanker brails and outhaul topsail sheets and halyards, the jib downhaul and topsail clue lines and bunt lines. 
The young sailor gave a look to see that his orders were promptly and accurately obeyed, and then turned again to the owner. "'And how did this misfortune occur?' inquired the latter, resuming the interrupted conversation. "'Alas, sir, in the most unexpected manner. After a long talk with the harbour-master, Captain Leclerc left Naples greatly disturbed in mind.' In twenty-four hours he was attacked by a fever and died three days afterwards. We performed the usual burial service, and he is at his rest, sewn up in his hammock with a thirty-six-pound shot at his head and his heels, off El Gilio Island. We bring to his widow his sword and cross of honour. It was worth while, truly, added the young man with a melancholy smile, to make war against the English for ten years, and to die in his bed at last, like everybody else. "'Why, you see, Edmond,' replied the owner, who appeared more comforted at every moment, "'we are all mortal, and the old must make way for the young. "'If not, why, there would be no promotion. "'And since you assure me that the cargo is all safe and sound, Monsieur Morel, "'take my word for it, and I advise you not to take the twenty-five thousand francs "'for the profits of the voyage.' Then, as they were just passing the round tower, the young man shouted, "'Stand by there to lower the top sails and jib. Brail up the spanker.' The order was executed as promptly as it would have been on a man-of-war. "'Let go and clue up.' At this last command, all the sails were lowered, and the vessel moved almost imperceptibly onwards. "'Now, if you will come on board, Monsieur Morel,' said Dante, observing the owner's impatience. Here is your supercargo, Monsieur Danglars, coming out of his cabin, who will furnish you with every particular. As for me, I must look after the anchoring and dress the ship in mourning. The owner did not wait for a second invitation. He seized a rope which Dante flung to him, and with an activity that would have done credit to a sailor, climbed up the side of the ship, while the young man going to his task left the conversation to Donglars, who now came towards the owner. He was a man of twenty-five or twenty-six years of age, of unprepossessing countenance, obsequious to his superiors, insolent to his subordinates, and this in addition to his position as responsible agent on board, which is always obnoxious to the sailors, made him as much disliked by the crew as Edmund Dante was beloved by them. "'Well, Monsieur Morel,' said Danglars, "'you have heard of the misfortune that has befallen us?' "'Yes, yes, uh, poor Captain Leclerc. "'He was a brave and honest man, "'and a first-rate seaman, "'one who had seen long and honourable service, "'as became a man charged with the interests of a house "'so important as that of Morel and Son,' replied Danglars. "'But,' replied the owner, glancing after Dante, who was watching the anchoring of his vessel. "'It seems to me that a sailor needs not be so old as you say, Donglar, to understand his business, for our friend Edmond seems to understand it thoroughly and not to require instruction from anyone.' "'Yes,' said Donglar, darting at Edmond a look gleaming with hate. "'Yes, uh, he is young.' and youth is invariably self-confident. Scarcely was the captain's breath out of his body 
when he assumed the command without consulting anyone, and he caused us to lose a day and a half at the island of Elba, instead of making for Marseille direct. As to taking command of the vessel, replied Morel, that was his duty as captain's mate. As to losing a day and a half off the island of Elba, he was wrong unless the vessel needed repairs. The vessel was in as good condition as I am, and as I hope you are, Monsieur Morel, and this day and a half was lost from pure whim for the pleasure of going ashore, and nothing else. Dante, said the shipowner, turning towards the young man, come this way. In a moment, sir, answered Dante, and I'm with you. Then calling to the crew, he said, let go. The anchor was instantly dropped, and the chain ran rattling through the porthole. Dante continued at his post in spite of the presence of the pilot, until this manoeuvre was completed. And then he added, half master colours, and square the yards. You see, said Donglar, he fancies himself captain already upon my word. And so in fact he is, said the owner. Except your signature and your partner's, Monsieur Morel. And why should he not have this? asked the owner. He is young, it is true, but he seems to me a thorough seaman and of full experience. A cloud passed over Danglars' brow. Your pardon, Monsieur Morel, said Dante, approaching. The vessel now rides at anchor, and I am at your service. You hailed me, I think. Danglars retreated a step or two. I wish to inquire why you stopped at the island of Elba. I do not know, sir. It was to fulfil the last instructions of Captain Leclerc, who, when dying, gave me a packet for Marshal Bertrand. Then did you see him, Edmond? Who? The Marshal. Yes. Morel looked around him, and then drawing Dante on one side, he said suddenly, And how is the Emperor? Very well, as far as I could judge from the sight of him. You saw the Emperor, then? He entered the Marshal's apartment while I was there. And you spoke to him? Why, it was he who spoke to me, sir, said Dante with a smile. And what did he say to you? Asked me questions about the vessel, the time she left Marseille, the course she had taken, and what was her cargo. I believe if she had not been laden and I had been her master, I, he would have bought her. But I told him I was only mate and that she belonged to the firm of Morel and Son. Ah, yes, he said, I know them. The Morels have been shipowners from father to son, and there was a Morel who served in the same regiment with me when I was in garrison at Valence. Pardieu, and that is true, cried the owner, greatly delighted. And that was Policar Morel, my uncle, who was afterwards a captain. Dante, you must tell my uncle that the emperor remembered him, and you will see it will bring tears into the old soldier's eyes. Come, come continued he, patting Edmund's shoulder kindly. You did very right, Dante, to follow Captain Leclerc's instructions and touch at Elba. Although, if it were known that you had conveyed a packet to the marshal and had conversed with the emperor, 
It might bring you into trouble. How could that bring me into trouble, sir? asked Dante. For I did not even know of what I was the bearer, and the emperor merely made such inquiries as he would of the first comer. But pardon me, here are the health officers and the customs inspectors coming alongside. And the young man went to the gangway. As he departed, Danglars approached and said, Well, it appears that he has given you satisfactory reasons for his landing at Porto Ferraio. Yes, most satisfactory, my dear Danglars. Well, so much the better, said the supercargo, for it is not pleasant to think that a comrade has not done his duty. Dante has done his, replied the owner. And that is not saying much. It was Captain Leclerc who gave orders for this delay. Talking of Captain Leclerc, has not Dante given you a letter from him? To me? No. Was there one? I believe that, besides the packet, Captain Leclerc confided a letter to his care. Of what packet are you speaking, Donglars? Why... That which Dante left at Porto Ferraio. How do you know he had a packet to leave at Porto Ferraio? Danglars turned very red. I was passing close to the door of the captain's cabin, which was half open, and I saw him give the packet and letter to Dante. He did not speak to me of it, replied the shipowner. But if there be any letter, he will give it to me. Danglars reflected for a moment. Then, Monsieur Morel, I beg of you, said he, not to say a word to Dante on the subject. I may have been mistaken. At this moment, the young man returned. Danglars withdrew. Well, my dear Dante, are you now free? inquired the owner. Yes, sir. You have not been long detained. No, I gave the custom house officers a copy of our bill of lading. And as to the other papers, they sent a man off with the pilot to whom I gave them. Then you have nothing more to do here. No, everything is all right now. Then you can come and dine with me. I really must ask you to excuse me, Monsieur Morel, my first visit is due to my father, though I am not the less grateful for the honour you have done me. Right, Dante, quite right. I always knew you were a good son. And, inquired Dante with some hesitation, do you know how my father is? Well, I believe, my dear Edmond, though I have not seen him lately. Yes, he likes to keep himself shut up in his little room. That proves, at least, that he was wanted for nothing during your absence. Dante smiled. My father is proud, sir, and if he had not a meal left, I doubt if he would have asked anything from anyone, except from heaven. Well, then, after this first visit has been made, we shall count on you. I must again excuse myself, Monsieur Morel, for after this first visit has been paid, I have another which I am most anxious to pay. True, Dante. I forgot 
There was at the Catalans someone who expects you no less impatiently than your father, the lovely Mercedes. Dante blushed. Aha, said the shipowner. I am not in the least surprised, for she has been to me three times, inquiring if there were any news of the pharaoh. Best, Edmond, you have a very handsome mistress. She is not my mistress, replied the young sailor gravely. She is my betrothed. Sometimes a one and the same thing, said Morel with a smile. Not with us, sir, replied Dante. Well, well, my dear Edmond, continued the owner. Don't let me detain you. You have managed my affairs so well that I ought to allow you all the time you require for your own. Do you want any money? No, sir, I have all my pay to take. Nearly three months' wages. You are a careful fellow, Edmond. Say I have a poor father, sir. Yes, yes, I know how good a son you are. So now hasten away to see your father. I have a son too, and I should be very wroth with those who detained him from me after three months' voyage. Then I have your leave, sir? Yes, if you have nothing more to say to me. Nothing. Captain Leclerc did not, uh, before he died, give you a letter from me? He was unable to write, sir, but that, that reminds me that I must ask you leave of absence for some days. To get married? Yes, first, and then go to Paris. Very good. Have what time you require, Dante. It will take quite six weeks to unload the cargo and we cannot get you ready for sea until three months after that. Only be back in three months. For the fair one, added the owner, patting the young sailor on the back, cannot sail without her captain. Without her captain? cried Dante, his eyes sparkling with animation. Pray mind what you say, for you are touching on the most secret wishes of my heart. Is it really your intention to make me captain of the fair one? If I were sole owner, we'd shake hands on it now, my dear Dante, and call it settled. But I have a partner, and you know the Italian proverb, Chi ha compagno ha padrone. He who has a partner has a master. But the thing is at least half done, as you have one out of two votes. Rely on me to procure the other. I will do my best. Ah, oh, Monsieur Morel exclaimed the young seaman, with tears in his eyes, and grasping the owner's hand. Monsieur Morel, I thank you in the name of my father, and of Mercedes. That's all right, Edmond. There's a providence that watches over the deserving. Go to your father, go and see Mercedes, and afterwards come to me. Shall I row you ashore? No, thank you. I shall remain and look over the accounts with Donglar. Have you been satisfied with him this voyage? That is according to the sense you attach to the question, sir. Do you mean, is he a good comrade? No, for I think he never liked me since the day when I was silly enough. After a little quarrel, we had to propose to him to stop for ten minutes at the island of Monte Cristo to settle the dispute. A proposition which I was wrong to suggest, and he quite right to refuse. 
If you mean as responsible agent, when you ask me the question, I believe there is nothing to say against him, and that you would be content with the way in which he has performed his duty. But tell me, Dante, if you had command of the Pharaon, should you be glad to see Dongla remain? Captain or mate, Monsieur Morel, I shall always have the greatest respect for those who possess the owner's confidence. That's right, that's right, Dante. I see you are a thoroughly good fellow, and will detain you no longer. Go, for I see how impatient you are. Then I have leave? Go, I tell you. May I have the use of your skiff? Certainly. Then, for the present, Monsieur Morel, farewell and a thousand thanks. I hope soon to see you again, my dear Edmond. Good luck to you. The young sailor jumped into the skiff and sat down in the stern sheets with the order that he be put ashore at La Canabière. The two oarsmen bent to their work and the little boat glided away as rapidly as possible in the midst of the thousand vessels which choke up the narrow way which leads between the two rows of ships from the mouth of the harbour to the Quai d'Orléans. The shipowner, smiling, followed him with his eyes until he saw him spring out on the quay and disappear in the midst of the throng, which from five o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night swarms in the famous street of La Canabière, a street of which the modern Phocéans are so proud that they say with all the gravity in the world, and with that accent which gives so much character to what is said, if Paris had La Canabière, Paris would be a second Marseille. On turning round, the owner saw Donglard behind him, apparently awaiting orders, but in reality also watching the young sailor. But there was a great difference in the expression of the two men who thus followed the movements of Edmond Dante. End of chapter 1「Father and Son We will leave Donglar struggling with the demon of hatred and endeavouring to insinuate in the ear of the shipowner some evil suspicions against his comrade, and follow Dante who, after having traversed La Canabière, took the Rue de Noeil and entered a small house on the left of the Allée de Meillon, rapidly ascended four flights of a dark staircase, holding the baluster with one hand, while with the other he repressed the beatings of his heart and paused before a half-open door from which he could see the whole of a small room. This room was occupied by Dante's father, the news of the arrival of the pharaoh had not yet reached the old man, who, mounted on a chair, was amusing himself by training with trembling hand the nasturtiums and sprays of clematis that clambered over the trellis at his window. Suddenly he felt an arm thrown around his body, and a well-known voice behind him exclaimed, "'A father! A dear father!' The old man uttered a cry and turned round, then seeing his son, he fell into his arms. 
pale and trembling. "'What ails you, my dearest father? Are you ill?' inquired the young man, much alarmed. "'No, no, my dear Edmond. My boy, my son. No, but I did not expect you. And joy, the surprise of seeing you so suddenly. I feel as if I'm going to die. Come, come, cheer up, my dear father. It is I, really I. They say joy never hurts, and so I came to you without any warning. Come now, do smile, instead of looking at me so solemnly. Here I am, back again, and we are going to be happy. Yes, yes, my boy, so we will, so we will, replied the old man. But how shall we be happy? Shall you never leave me again? Come, tell me all the good fortune that has befallen you. God forgive me, said the young man, for rejoicing at happiness derived from the misery of others. But heaven knows I did not seek this good fortune. It has happened, and I really cannot pretend to lament it. The good Captain Leclerc is dead, father, and it is probable that with the aid of Monsieur Morel I shall have his place. Do you understand, father? Only imagine me a captain at twenty, with a hundred louis pay, and a share in the profits. Is this not more than a poor sailor like me could have hoped for? Yes, my dear boy, replied the old man. It is very fortunate. Well then, with the first money I touch, I mean you to have a small house, with a garden in which to plant clematis, nasturtium, and honeysuckle. But what ails you, father? Are you not well? It is nothing, nothing. It will soon pass away. And as he said so, the old man's strength failed him, and he fell backwards. Come, come, said the young man. A glass of wine, father, will revive you. Where do you keep your wine? No, no thanks. You need not look for it. I do not want it, said the old man. Yes, yes, father, tell me where it is. And he opened two or three cupboards. It is no use, said the old man. There is no wine. What, no wine? said Dante, turning pale and looking alternately at the hollow cheeks of the old man and the empty cupboards. What, no wine? Have you wanted money, father? I want nothing now that I have you, said the old man. Yet, stammered Dante, wiping the perspiration from his brow, yet I gave you two hundred francs when I left, three months ago. Yes, yes, Edmund, that is true, but you forgot at the time a little debt to our neighbor, Gadarus. He reminded me of it, telling me if I did not pay for you, he would be paid by Monsieur Morel, and so you see lest he might do you an injury. Well, why, I paid him. But, cried Dante, it was a hundred and forty francs I owed Caderousse. Yes, stammered the old man. And you paid him out of the two hundred francs I left you? The old man nodded. So that you have lived for three months on sixty francs, muttered Edmond. You know how little I require, said the old man. Heaven pardon me, 
cried Edmund, falling on his knees before his father. What are you doing? You have wounded me to the heart. Never mind it, for I see you once more, said the old man, and now it's all over. Everything is all right again. Yes, I, I am here, said the young man, with a promising future and a little money. Here, father, here, he said. Take this, take it, and send for something immediately. And he emptied his pockets on the table, the contents consisting of a dozen gold pieces, five or six five franc pieces and some smaller coin. The countenance of old Dante brightened. Whom does this belong to? he inquired. To me, to you, to us. Take it, uh, buy some provisions, be happy, and tomorrow we shall have more. Gently, gently, said the old man with a smile, and by your leave, I will use your purse moderately, for they would say, if they saw me buy too many things at a time, that I had been obliged to await your return in order to be able to purchase them. Do as you please, but first of all, pray have a servant, father. I would not have you left alone so long. I have some smuggled coffee and most capital tobacco in a small chest in the hold, which you shall have tomorrow. But hush, here comes somebody. It is Caderousse, who has heard of your arrival, and no doubt comes to congratulate you on your fortunate return. Ah, lips that say one thing, while the heart thinks another, murmured Edmond. But never mind, he is a neighbour who has done us a service on a time, so he is welcome. As Edmond paused, the black and bearded head of Caderousse appeared at the door. He was a man of twenty-five or six, and held a piece of cloth which, being a tailor, he was about to make into a coat lining. "'What is it, you, Edmond, back again?' said he with a broad Marseillaise accent, and a grin that displayed his ivory-white teeth. "'Yes, yes, as you see, neighbour Caderousse, and ready to be agreeable to you in any and every way,' replied Dante, but ill-concealing his coldness under his cloak of civility. "'Thanks, thanks, but fortunately I do not want for anything, and it chances that at times there are others who have need of me,' Dante made a gesture. "'I do not allude to you, my boy. No, no, I lent you money, and you returned it. That's like good neighbours, and we are quits.' "'We are never quits with those who oblige us,' was Dante's reply. "'For when we do not owe them money, we owe them gratitude.' What's the use of mentioning that? What is done is done. Let us talk of your happy return, my boy. I had got on the key to match a piece of mulberry cloth when I met a friend Donglars. You at Marseille? Yes, he says. I thought you were at Smyrna. I was, but now I am back again. And where is the dear boy, our little Edmond? Why, with his father, no doubt, replied Donglars. And so I came, added Caderousse, so fast as I could, to have the pleasure of shaking hands with a friend. Worthy Caderousse, said the old man, he is so much attached to us. Yes, to be sure I am. I love and esteem you, because honest folks are so rare. 
But it seems you have come back rich, my boy, continued the tailor, looking askance at the handful of gold and silver which Dante had thrown on the table. The young man remarked the greedy glance which shone in the dark eyes of his neighbour. Eh, he said negligently, this money is not mine. I was expressing to my father my fears that he had wanted many things in my absence, and to convince me he emptied his purse on the table. Come, father, added Dante, put this money back in your box, unless neighbour Caderousse wants anything, and in that case it is at his service. No, no, my boy, no, said Caderousse. I am not in any want. Thank God, my living is suited to my means. Keep your money, keep it, I say. One never has too much. But at the same time, my boy, I am as much obliged by your offer as if I took advantage of it. It was offered with good will, said Dante. No doubt, my boy, no doubt. Well, you stand well with Monsieur Morel, I hear. Are you insinuating dog you? And Monsieur Morel has always been exceedingly kind to me, replied Dante. Then you were wrong to refuse to dine with him. What? Did you refuse to dine with him? said old Dante. And did he invite you to dine? Yes, my father, replied Edmond, smiling at his father's astonishment at the excessive honour paid to his son. And why did you refuse, my son? inquired the old man. That I might sooner see you again, my dear father, replied the young man. I was most anxious to see you. But it must have vexed Monsieur Morel good, worthy man, said Caderousse. And when you are looking forward to be captain, it was wrong to annoy the owner. But I explained to him the cause of my refusal, replied Dante, and I hope he fully understood it. Yes, but to be captain once must do a little flattery to one's patrons. I hope to be captain without that, said Dante. So much the better, so much the better. Nothing will give greater pleasure to all your old friends, and I know one down there behind the San Nicolas Citadel who will not be sorry to hear it. Mercedes, said the old man. Yes, my dear father. And with your permission, now I have seen you, and know you are well, and have all you require, I will ask your consent to go and pay a visit to the Catalans. Go, my dear boy, said the old Dante, and heaven bless you in your wife, as it has blessed me in my son. His wife, said Caderousse. Why, how fast you go on, Father Dante. She is not his wife yet, as it seems to me. So, but according to all probability, she soon will be, replied Edmond. Yes, yes, said Caderousse, but you are right to return as soon as possible, my boy. And why? Because Mercedes is a very fine girl, and fine girls never lack followers. She particularly has them by dozens. Really? answered Edmond with a smile which had in it traces of slight uneasiness. Ah, yes, continued Caderousse, and capital offers, too. But you know, you will be captain, and who could refuse you then? Meaning to say, replied Dante with a smile which but ill concealed his trouble, that if I were not a captain? Hey, said Caderousse, shaking his head, 
Come, come, said the sailor. I have a better opinion than your women in general, and of Mercedes in particular. And I am certain that, captain or not, she will remain ever faithful to me. So much the better. So much the better, said Caderousse. When one is going to be married, there is nothing like implicit confidence. But never mind that, my boy. Go and announce your arrival, and let her know all your hopes and prospects. I will go directly, was Edmund's reply, and embracing his father, and nodding to Caderousse, he left the apartment. Caderousse lingered for a moment, then taking leave of old Dante, he went downstairs to rejoin Donglars, who awaited him at the corner of the Rue Senac. Well, said Donglars, did you see him? I have just left him, answered Caderousse. Did he allude to his hope of being captain? He spoke of it as a thing already decided. Indeed, said Donglars. He is in too much hurry, it appears to me. Why? It seems Monsieur Morel has promised him the thing. So that he is quite elated about it? Why, yes. He is actually insolent over the matter has already offered me his patronage as if he were a grand personage and offered me a loan of money as though he were a banker. Which you refused? Most assuredly, although I might easily have accepted it, for it was I who put into his hands the first silver he ever earned. But now Monsieur Dante has no longer any occasion for assistance. He is about to become a captain. Pooh! said Donglar. He is not one yet. Ma foi, it'll be as well if he is not, answered Caderousse, for if he should be, there will be really no speaking to him. If we choose, replied Donglar, he will remain what he is, and perhaps become even less than he is. What do you mean? Nothing. I was speaking to myself. And is he still in love with the Catalan? Over head and ears. But unless I am much mistaken, there will be a storm in that quarter. Explain yourself. Why should I? It is more important than you think, perhaps. You do not like Dante. I never like upstarts. Then tell me all you know about the Catalan. I know nothing for certain, only I have seen things which induce me to believe, as I told you, that the future captain will find some annoyance in the vicinity of the Vieille Infirmiere. What have you seen? Come, tell me. Well, every time I see Mercedes come into the city, she has been accompanied by a tall, strapping, black-eyed Catalan with a red complexion, brown skin, and fierce air whom she calls cousin. Really? And you think this cousin pays her attentions? I only suppose so. What else can a strapping chap of twenty-one mean, with a fine wench of seventeen? And you say that Dante has gone to the Catalans? He went before I came down. Let us go the same way. We will stop at La Reserve, and we can drink a glass of La Malgue, whilst we wait for news. Come along, said Caderousse, but you pay the score.
Of course, replied Danglars, and going quickly to the designated place, they called for a bottle of wine and two glasses. Père Pomphile had seen Dante pass not ten minutes before, and assured that he was at the Catalans, they sat down under the budding foliage of the plains and sycamores, in the branches of which the birds were singing their welcome to one of the first days of spring. End of chapter 2「Chapter Three Beyond a bare, weather-worn wall, about a hundred paces from the spot where the two friends sat looking and listening as they drank their wine, was the village of the Catalans. Long ago this mysterious colony quitted Spain, and settled on the tongue of land on which it is to this day. Whence it came no one knew, and it spoke an unknown tongue. One of its chiefs, who understood Provençal, begged the commune of Marseille to give them this bare and barren promontory, where, like the sailors of old, they had run their boats ashore. The request was granted, and three months afterwards, around the twelve or fifteen small vessels which had brought those gypsies of the sea, a small village sprang up. This village, constructed in a singular and picturesque manner, half Moorish, half Spanish, still remains and is inhabited by descendants of the first comers, who speak the language of their fathers. For three or four centuries they have remained upon this small promontory, on which they had settled like a flight of seabirds, without mixing with the Marseillaise population, intermarrying and preserving their original customs, and the costume of their mother country, as they have preserved its language. Our readers will follow us along the only street of this little village, and enter with us one of the houses which is sunburned to the beautiful dead-leaf colour peculiar to the buildings of the country, and within coated with whitewash like a Spanish posada. A young and beautiful girl, with hair as black as jet, her eyes as velvety as the gazelle's, was leaning with her back against the wainscot, rubbing in her slender, delicately moulded fingers a bunch of heath blossoms, the flowers of which she was picking off and strewing on the floor. Her arms bare to the elbow, brown and mottled after those of the Arlesian Venus, moved with a kind of restless impatience, and she tapped the earth with her arched and supple foot, so as to display the pure and full shape of her well-turned leg in its red cotton, grey and blue clocked stocking. At three paces from her, seated in a chair, which he balanced on two legs, leaning his elbow on an old worm-eaten table, was a tall young man of twenty or two-and-twenty, who was looking at her with an air in which vexation and uneasiness were mingled. He questioned her with his eyes, but the firm and steady gaze of the young girl controlled his look. Oh, you see, Mercedes, said the young man, here is Easter come round again. Tell me, is this the moment for a wedding? I have answered you a hundred times, Fernand, and really you must be very stupid to ask me again. Well, repeat it. Repeat it, I beg of you, that I may at last believe it. 
tell me for the hundredth time that you refuse my love, which had your mother's sanction. Make me understand once for all that you are trifling with my happiness, that my life or death are nothing to you. Oh, to have dreamed for ten years of being your husband, Mercedes, and to lose that hope, which was the only stay of my existence. At least it was not I who ever encouraged you in that hope, Fernand, replied Mercedes. You cannot reproach me with the slightest coquetry. I have always said to you, I love you as a brother, but do not ask from me more than sisterly affection, for my heart is another's. Is not this true, Fernand? Yes, that is very true, Mercedes, replied the young man. Yes, you have been cruelly frank with me, but do you forget that it is among the Catalans a sacred law to intermarry? You mistake, Fernand. It is not a law, but merely a custom. And I pray of you, do not cite this custom in your favour. You are included in the conscription, Fernand, and are only at liberty on sufferance, liable at any moment to be called upon to take up arms. Once a soldier, what would you do with me, a poor orphan, forlorn without fortune, with nothing but a half-ruined hut and a few ragged nets, the miserable inheritance left by my father to my mother, and by my mother to me? She has been dead a year, and you know, Fernand, I have subsisted almost entirely on public charity. Sometimes... You pretend I am useful to you, and that is an excuse to share with me the produce of your fishing, and I accept it, Fernand, because you are the son of my father's brother, because we were brought up together, and still more because it would give you so much pain if I refuse. But I feel very deeply that this fish which I go and sell, and with the produce of which I buy the flax I spin, I feel very keenly, Fernand, that this is charity. And if it were, Mercedes, poor and lone as you are, you suit me as well as the daughter of the first shipowner or the richest banker of Marseille. What do you such as we desire but a good wife and a careful housekeeper? And where can I look for these better than in you? Fernand, answered Mercedes, shaking her head. A woman becomes a bad manager, and who shall say she will remain an honest woman when she loves another man better than her husband? Rest content with my friendship, for I say once more, that is all I can promise, and I will promise no more than I can bestow. I understand, replied Fernand. You can endure your own wretchedness patiently. But you are afraid to share mine. Well, Mercedes, beloved by you, I would attempt fortune. You would bring me good luck, and I should become rich. I could extend my occupation as a fisherman, might get a place as clerk in a warehouse, and become in time a dealer myself. You could do no such thing, Fernand. You are a soldier, and if you remain at the Catalans, it is because there is no war, so remain a fisherman and contented with my friendship, as I cannot give you more. 
Well, I will do better, Mercedes. I will be a sailor, instead of the costume of our fathers which you despise. I will wear a varnished hat, a striped shirt, and a blue jacket with an anchor on the buttons. Would not that dress please you? What do you mean? asked Mercedes, with an angry glance. What do you mean? I do not understand you. I mean, Mercedes, that you are thus harsh and cruel with me, because you are expecting someone who is thus attired. But perhaps he whom you await is inconstant, or if he is not, the sea is so to him. Fernand, cried Mercedes, I believed you were good-hearted, and I was mistaken. Fernand, you are a wicked to call your aid jealousy and the anger of God. Yes, I will not deny it. I do await and I do love of him, of who you speak, and if he does not return, instead of accusing him of the inconstancy which you insinuate, I will tell you that he died loving me and me only. The young girl made a gesture of rage. I understand you, Fernand. You would be revenged on him because I do not love you. You would cross your Catalan knife with his dirk. What end would that answer? To lose you my friendship if he were conquered, and see that friendship changed into hate if you were victor. Believe me, to seek a quarrel with a man is a bad method of pleasing the woman who loves the man. No, Fernand, you will not thus give way to evil thoughts. Unable to have me for your wife, you would content yourself with having me for your friend and sister. And besides, she added, her eyes troubled and moistened with tears, Wait, wait, Fernand, you said just now that the sea was treacherous, and he has been gone for four months, and during those four months there have been some terrible storms. Fernand made no reply, nor did he attempt to check the tears which flowed down the cheeks of Mercedes. Although for each of these tears he would have shed his heart's blood, but these tears flowed for another. He arose, paced a while up and down the hut, and then suddenly stopping before Mercedes, with his eyes glowing and his hands clenched. Say, Mercedes, he said, once for all, is this your final determination? I love Edmond Dante, the young girl calmly replied and none but Edmond shall ever be my husband. And you will always love him? As long as I live. Fernand let fall his head like a defeated man, heaved a sigh that was like a groan, and then suddenly looking her full in the face with clenched teeth and expanded nostrils said, But if he is dead? If he is dead... I shall die too. If he has forgotten you? Mercedes! called a joyous voice from without. Mercedes! Oh! exclaimed the young girl, blushing with delight and fairly leaping in excess of love. You see, he has not forgotten me, for here he is. And rushing towards the door, she opened it, saying, Here, Edmond! Here I am. Fernand, pale and trembling, drew back like a traveller at the sight of a serpent, and fell into a chair beside him. 
Edmond and Mercedes were clasped in each other's arms. The burning Marseille sun, which shot into the room through the open door, covered them with a flood of light. At first they saw nothing around them. Their intense happiness isolated them from all the rest of the world, and they only spoke in broken words, which are the tokens of a joy so extreme that they seem rather the expression of sorrow. Suddenly, Edmond saw the gloomy, pale and threatening countenance of Fernand as it was defined in the shadow. By a movement for which he could scarcely account to himself, the young Catalan placed his hand on the knife at his belt. "'Ah, your pardon,' said Dante, frowning in his turn. "'I did not perceive that there were three of us.' Then, turning to Mercedes, he inquired, "'Who is this gentleman?' one who would be your best friend dante for he is my friend my cousin my brother it is fernand the man whom after you edmond i love the best in the world do you not remember him yes said dante and without relinquishing mercedes hand clasped in one of his own he extended the other to the catalan with a cordial air but fernand instead of responding to this amiable gesture remained mute and trembling. Edmond then cast his eyes scrutinizingly at the agitated and embarrassed Mercedes, and then again on the gloomy and menacing Fernand. This look told him all, and his anger waxed hot. I did not know, when I came with such haste to you, that I was to meet an enemy here. An enemy? cried Mercedes with an angry look at her cousin. An enemy in my house? Do you say, Edmond? If I believed that I would place my arm under yours and go with you to Marseille, leaving the house to return to it no more. Fernand's eye darted lightning. And should any misfortune occur to you, dear Edmond, she continued with the same calmness which proved to Fernand that the young girl had read the very innermost depths of his sinister thought. If misfortune should occur to you, I would ascend at the highest point of the Cap de Morgion and cast myself headlong from it. Fernand became deadly pale. But you are deceived, Edmond, she continued. You have no enemy here. There is no one but Fernand, my brother, who would grasp your hand as a devoted friend. And at these words the young girl fixed her imperious look on the Catalan, who, as if fascinated by it, came slowly towards Edmond and offered him his hand. His hatred, like a powerless, though furious wave, was broken against the strong ascendancy which Mercedes exercised over him. Scarcely, however, had he touched Edmond's hand than he felt he had done all he could do and rushed hastily out of the house. Oh! he exclaimed, running furiously and tearing his hair. Oh, who will deliver me from this man? Wretched, wretched that I am. Hello, Catalan. Hello, Fernand. Where are you running to? exclaimed a voice. The young man stopped suddenly, looking around him, and perceived Caderousse sitting at table with Donglars under an arbor. Well, said Caderousse, why don't you come? Are you really in such a hurry that you have no time to pass the time of day with your friends? 
particularly when they have still a full bottle before them, added Danglars. Fernand looked at them both with a stupefied air, but did not say a word. He seems besotted, said Danglars, pushing Caderousse with his knee. Are we mistaken? And is Dante a triomphant, in spite of all we have believed? Why, we must inquire into that, was Caderousse's reply, and turning towards the young man said, Well, Catalan, can't you make up your mind? Fernand wiped away the perspiration steaming from his brow, and slowly entered the arbour, whose shade seemed to restore somewhat of calmness to his senses, and whose coolness somewhat of refreshment to his exhausted body. "'Good day,' said he. "'You called me, didn't you?' And he fell rather than sat down on one of the seats which surrounded the table. "'I called you because you were running like a madman, and I was afraid you would throw yourself into the sea.' said Caderousse, laughing. Why, when a man has friends, they are not only to offer him a glass of wine, but moreover to prevent his swallowing three or four pints of water unnecessarily. Fernand gave a groan, which resembled a sob, and dropped his head into his hands, his elbows leaning on the table. Well, Fernand, I must say, said Caderousse, beginning the conversation with that brutality of the common people, in which curiosity destroys all diplomacy. You look uncommonly like a rejected lover. Ha, <laughs> as he burst into a hoarse laugh. Bah, said Danglars, a lad of his make was not born to be unhappy in love. You are laughing at him, Caderousse. No, he replied. Only hark how he sighs. Come, come, Fernand, said Caderousse. Hold up your head and answer us. It's not polite not to reply to friends who ask news of your health. My health is well enough, said Fernand, clinching his hands without raising his head. Ah, you see, Danglars, said Caderousse, winking at his friend. This is how it is. A Fernand, whom you see here, is a good and brave Catalan, one of the best fishermen in Marseille, and he is in love with a very fine girl named Mercedes, but it appears, unfortunately, that the fine girl is in love with the mate of the pharaoh. And as the pharaoh arrived today, why, you understand. No, I do not understand, said Danglars. Poor Fernand has been dismissed, continued Caderousse. Well, and what then, said Fernand, lifting up his head and looking at Caderousse, like a man who looks for someone on whom to vent his anger. Mercedes is not accountable to any person, is she? Is she not free to love whomsoever she will? Oh, if you take it in that sense, said Caderousse, it is another thing, but I thought you were a Catalan, and they told me the Catalans were not men to allow themselves to be supplanted by a rival. It was even told me that Fernand especially was terrible in his vengeance. Fernand smiled piteously. A lover is never terrible, he said. Poor fellow, remarked Danglars, affecting to pity the young man from the bottom of his heart. Why, you see, he did not expect to see Dante return so soon. He thought he was dead, 
perhaps, or perchance faithless. These things always come on us more severely when they come suddenly. Ah, ma foi, under any circumstance, said Caderousse, who drank as he spoke, and on whom the fumes of the wine began to take effect. Under any circumstance, Fernand is not only person but out by the unfortunate arrival of Dante. Is he, Donglar? No, you are right, and I should say that would bring him ill luck. Well, never mind, answered Caderousse, pouring out a glass of wine for Fernand and filling his own for the eighth or ninth time, while Donglar had merely sipped his. Never mind. In the meantime, he marries Mercedes, the lovely Mercedes. At least he returns to that. During this time, Donglar fixed his piercing glance on the young man, on whose heart Caderousse's words fell like molten lead. And when is the wedding to be? he asked. Oh, it is not yet fixed, murmured Fernand. No, but it will be, said Caderousse, as surely as the Dante will be captain of the Ferron. Eh, Danglar? Danglar shuddered at his unexpected attack and turned to Caderousse, whose countenance he scrutinized to try and detect whether the blow was premeditated. But he read nothing but envy in a countenance already rendered brutal and stupid by drunkenness. Well, said he, filling the glasses, let us drink to Captain Edmond de Dante, husband of the beautiful Catalan. Caderousse raised his glass to his mouth with unsteady hand and swallowed the contents at a gulp. Fernand dashed his on the ground. Eh, hey, eh, hey, eh, hey, stammered Caderousse. What do I see down there by the wall in the direction of the Catalans? Look, Fernand, your eyes are better than mine. I believe I see double. You know, wine is a deceiver, but I would say it was two lovers walking side by side and hand in hand. Heaven forgive me, they do not know that we can see them, and they are actually embracing. Donglar did not lose one pang that Fernand endured. Do you know them, Fernand? he said. Yes, was the reply in a low voice. It is Edmond and Mercedes. Ah, see there now, said Caderousse. And I did not recognize them. Hello, Dante. Hello, lovely damselle. Come this way and let us know when the wedding is to be. For Fernand here is so obstinate he will not tell us. Hold your tongue, will you? said Donglar, pretending to restrain Caderousse, who with the tenacity of drunkards leaned out of the arbor. I try to stand upright and let the lovers make love without interruption. See, look at Fernand, and follow his example. He is well behaved. Fernand, probably excited beyond bearing, pricked by Donglar as the bull is by the bandoleros, was about to rush out, for he had risen from his seat and seemed to be collecting himself to dash headlong upon his rival when Mercedes smiling and graceful, lifted up her lovely head and looked at them with her clear and bright eyes. 
At this, Fernand recollected her threat of dying if Edmund died, and dropped again heavily on his seat. Danglars looked at the two men, one after the other, the one brutalized by liquor, the other overwhelmed with love. I shall get nothing from these fools, he muttered, and I'm very much afraid of being here between a drunkard and a coward. He is an envious fellow making himself boozy on wine when he ought to be nursing his wrath. And here is a fool who sees the woman he loves stolen from under his nose and takes on like a big baby. Yet this Catalan has eyes that glisten like those of the vengeful Spaniards, Sicilians, and Calabrians. And the other has fists big enough to crush an ox at one blow. Unquestionably, Edmund Starr is in the ascendant, and he will marry the splendid girl. He will be captain too, and laugh at us all. Unless... A sinister smile passed over Danglars' lips. Unless I take a hand in the affair, he added. Hello, continued Caderousse, half rising, and with his fist on the table. Hello, Edmond. Uh, do you not uh, see your friends, or are you too proud to speak to them? No, my dear fellow, replied Dante, I am not proud, uh, but I am happy, and happiness blinds, I think, more than pride. Ha! Very well. That's an explanation, said Caderousse. How do you do, Madame Dante? Mercedes curtsied gravely and said, that is not my name, and in my country it bodes ill fortune, they say, to call a young girl by the name of a betrothed before he becomes her husband. So call me Mercedes, if you please. We must excuse our worthy neighbour, Caderousse, said Dante. He is so easily mistaken. So then, the wedding is to take place immediately, Monsieur Dante, said Danglars, bowing to the young couple. As soon as possible, Monsieur Danglars. Today all preliminaries will be arranged at my father's, and tomorrow or next day at latest, the wedding festival here at La Reserve. My friends will be there. I hope, that is to say, you are invited, Monsieur Danglars, and you, Caderousse. And Fernand? said Caderousse with a chuckle. <laughs> Fernand? He too is invited? My wife's brother is my brother said Edmond. And we, Mercedes and I, should be very sorry if he were absent at such a time. Fernand opened his mouth to reply, but his voice died on his lips, and he could not utter a word. Today the preliminaries, tomorrow or next day the ceremony? You are in a hurry, Captain. Donglar, said Edmond, smiling. I will say to you as Mercedes said just now to Caderousse. Do not give me a title which does not belong to me. That may bring me bad luck. Your pardon, replied Danglars. I merely said you seemed in a hurry. And we have lots of time. The pharaoh cannot be under way again in less than three months. We are always in a hurry to be happy, Monsieur Danglars. For when we have suffered a long time, we have great difficulty in believing in good fortune. But it is not selfishness alone that makes me thus in haste. 
I must go to Paris. Ah, uh, really? To Paris? And will it be the first time you have ever been there, Dante? Yes. Have you business there? Not of my own. The last commission of poor Captain Leclerc, you know to what I allude, Donglar. It is sacred. Besides, I shall only take the time to go and return. Yes, yes, I understand, said Donglar. And then in a low tone he added, To Paris, no doubt to deliver the letter which the Grand Marshal gave him. Ah, this letter gives me an idea, a capital idea. Ah, Dante, my friend, you are not yet registered number one on board the good ship Ferroin. Then turning toward Edmund, who was walking away, A pleasant journey, he cried. Thank you, said Edmund, with a friendly nod. And the two lovers continued on their way, as calm and joyous as if they were the very elect of heaven. End of chapter 3《Chapter 4 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Conspiracy. Danglars followed Edmond and Mercedes with his eyes until the two lovers disappeared behind one of the angles of Fort Saint Nicolas. Then turning around, he perceived Fernand, who had fallen pale and trembling into his chair while Caderousse stammered out the words of a drinking song. "'Well, my dear sir,' said Danglars to Fernand, "'here is a marriage which does not appear to make everybody happy.' "'It drives me to despair,' said Fernand. "'Do you love Mercedes?' "'I adore her.' "'For long?' "'As long as I ever known her, always.' And you sit there, tearing your hair, instead of seeking to remedy your condition? I did not think that was the way of your people. What would you have me do? said Fernand. How do I know? Is it my affair? I am not in love with Mademoiselle Mercedes. But for you, in the words of the Gospel, seek, and you shall find. I have found already. What? I would have stabbed the man, but the woman told me that if any misfortune happened to her betrothed, she would kill herself. Pooh! Women say those things, but never do them. You do not know, Mercedes, what she threatens she would do. Idiot, muttered Donglar, whether she kill herself or not. What matter, provided Dante is not captain? Before Mercedes should die, replied Fernand, with the accents of unshaken resolution, I would die myself. That's what I call love, said Caderousse with a voice more tipsy than ever. That's love, or I don't know what love is. Come, said Danglars. You appear to me a good sort of fellow, and hang me, I should like to help you, but... Yes, said Caderousse, but how? My dear fellow, 
replied Danglars. You are three parts drunk. Finish the bottle and you will be completely so. Drink then, and do not meddle with what we are discussing, for that requires all one's wit and cool judgment. I? Drunk? said Caderousse. Well, that's a good one. I could drink four more such bottles. They are no bigger than cologne flasks. Père Pamphile, more wine. And Caderousse rattled his glass upon the table. You were saying, sir, said Fernand, awaiting with great anxiety the end of this interrupted remark. What was I saying? I forget. This drunken Caderousse has made me lose the thread of my sentence. Drunk, if you like, so much the worse for those who fear wine, for it is because they have bad thoughts which they are afraid the liquor will extract from their hearts. And Caderousse began to sing the two last lines of a song very popular at that time. Tous les méchants sont beuvedos, c'est bien prouve par la déluge. The wicked are great drinkers of water, as the flood proved once for all. You said, sir, you would like it to help me, but... Yes, but I added... To help you, it would be sufficient that Dante did not marry her your love, and the marriage may easily be thwarted, methinks, and yet Dante need not die. Death alone can separate them, remarked Fernand. You talk like a noodle, my friend, said Caderousse, and here is Donglar, who is wide awake, clever, a deeper fellow, who will prove to you that you are wrong. Prove it, Jonglar. I have answered for you. Say there is no need why Dante should die. It would indeed be a pity he should. Dante is a good fellow. I like Dante. Dante, your health. Fernand rose impatiently. Let him run on said Danglars, restraining the young man. Drunk as he is, he is not much out in what he says. Absence severs as well as death, and if the walls of a prison were between Edmond and Mercedes, they would be as effectually separated as if he lay under a tombstone. Yes, but one gets out of prison, said Caderousse who, with what sense was left him, listened eagerly to the conversation. And when one gets out, and one's name is Edmond Dante, one seeks revenge. What matters that? muttered Fernand. And why I should like to know, persisted Caderousse, should they put... Dante in prison. He is not robbed or killed or murdered. Hold your tongue, said Donglar. I won't hold my tongue, replied Caderousse. I say, 
I want to know why they should put Dante in prison. I like Dante. Dante, your health. And he swallowed another glass of wine. Donglas saw in the muddled look of the tailor the progress of his intoxication, and turning towards Fernand said, Well, you understand that there is no need to kill him. Certainly not, if, as you said just now, you have the means of having Dante arrested. Have you that means? It is to be found for the searching, but why should I meddle in the matter? It is no affair of mine. I know not why you meddle, said Fernand, seizing his arm, but this I know. You have some motive of personal hatred against Dante, for he himself hates is never mistaken in the sentiments of others. I? Motives of hatred against Dante? None, my word. I saw you were unhappy, and your unhappiness interested me. That's all. But since you believe I act for my own account, adieu, my dear friend, get out of the affair as best you may. And Donglar rose, as if he meant to depart. No, no, said Fernand, restraining him. Stay, it is of very little consequence to me, at the end of the matter, whether you have any angry feeling or not against Dante. I hate him. I confess it openly. Do you find the means? I will execute it, provided it is not to kill the man. For Mercedes has declared she will kill herself if Dante is killed. Caderousse, who had let his head drop on the table, now raised it, and looked at Fernand with his dull and fishy eyes. He said, Kill Dante? Who talks of killing Dante? I won't have him killed. I won't. He's my friend. At this morning, offered to share his money with me, as I shared mine with him. I won't have Dante killed. I won't. And who has said a word about killing him, mudled? replied Donglar. We were merely joking. Drink to his health, he added, filling Caderousse's glass. And do not interfere with us. Yes, yes, Dante, good health, said Caderousse, emptying his glass. Here's to his health, his health, hurrah! But the means, the means, said Fernand. Have you not hit upon any? asked Donglar. No, you undertook to do so. True, replied Donglar. The French have the superiority over the Spaniards, that the Spaniards ruminate while the French invent. Do you invent, then? said Fernand impatiently. A waiter, said Donglar. A pen, ink, and paper. Pen, ink, and a paper, muttered Fernand. Yes, I am a supercargo. Pen, ink, and paper are my tools. And without my tools, I am fit for nothing. Pen, ink, and a paper, then, called Fernand loudly. There's what you want on that table, said the waiter. Bring them here. 
The waiter did as he was desired. "'When one thinks,' said Caderousse, letting his hand drop on the paper, "'there is the wherewithal to kill a man more sure than if we waited at the corner of a wood to assassinate him. I've always had more dread of a pen, a bottle of ink, and a sheet of paper than a sword or pistol.' The fellow is not so drunk as he appears to be, said Danglars. Give him some more wine, Fernand. Fernand filled Caderousse's glass, who, like the confirmed toper he was, lifted his hand from the paper and seized the glass. The Catalan watched him until Caderousse, almost overcome by this fresh assault on his senses, rested, or rather dropped his glass upon the table. Well, assumed the Catalan, as he saw the final glimmer of Caderousse's reason vanishing before the last glass of wine. "'Well, then, I should say, for instance,' resumed Anglars, "'that if after a voyage such as Dante has just made, "'in which he touched at the island of Elba, "'someone were to denounce him to the king's procureur "'as a Bonapartist agent, "'I will denounce him!' exclaimed the young man hastily. Yes, but they will make you then sign your declaration and confront you with him you, you have denounced. I will supply you with the means of supporting your accusation, for I know the fact well. But Dante cannot remain forever in prison, and one day or other he will leave it. And the day when he comes out, a woe betide him who was the cause of his incarceration. Oh, I should wish nothing better than that he would come and seek a quarrel with me. Yes, and Mercedes? Mercedes who will detest you if you have only the misfortune to scratch the skin of her dearly beloved Edmond? True, said Fernand. No, no, continued Danglars. If we resolve on such a step, it would be much better to take, as I now do, this pen, dip it into this ink, and write with the left hand, that the writing may not be recognized, the denunciation we propose. And Danglars, uniting practice with theory, wrote with his left hand, and in a writing reversed from his usual style, and totally unlike it, the following lines which he handed to Fernand, and which Fernand read in an undertone. The Honourable, the King's attorney, is informed by a friend of the throne and religion that one Edmond Dante, mate of the ship of heroin, arrived this morning from Smyrna, after having touched at Naples and Porto Ferraio, has been entrusted by Murat with a letter for the usurper, and by the usurper with a letter for the Bonapartist committee in Paris. Proof of this crime will be found on arresting him, for the letter will be found upon him, or at his father's, or in his cabin on board the Pharaoh. Very good, resumed Anglars. Now your revenge looks like common sense, for in no way can it revert to yourself, and the matter will thus work its own way. There is nothing to do now 
but fold the letter, as I am doing, and write upon it, To the king's attorney, and that's all settled. And Danglars wrote the address as he spoke. Yes, and that's all settled, exclaimed Caderousse, who by a last effort of intellect had followed the reading of the letter, and instinctively comprehended all the misery which such a denunciation must entail. Yes, and that's all settled, only it will be an infamous shame. And he stretched out his hand to reach the letter. Yes, said Danglars, taking it from beyond his reach, and as what I say and do is merely in jest, and I amongst the first and foremost should be sorry if anything happened to Dante, the worthy Dante, look here. And taking the letter, he squeezed it up in his hands and threw it into a corner of the arbor. All right, said Caderousse. Dante is my friend, and I won't have him ill-used. And who thinks of using him ill? Certainly neither I nor Fernand, said Donglars, rising and looking at the young man, who still remained seated but whose eye was fixed on a denunciatory sheet of paper flung into the corner. "'In this case,' replied Caderousse, "'let's have some more wine. I wish to drink to the health of Edmund and the lovely Mercedes.' "'You have had too much already, drunkard,' said Donglar. "'And if you continue, you will be compelled to sleep here.' "'because unable to stand on your legs.' "'I?' said Caderousse, "'rising with all the offended dignity of a drunken man. "'I can't keep on my legs. "'Why, I'll wager I can go up into the belfry of the Akul, "'and without a staggering, too.' "'Done,' said Donglar. "'I'll take your bet, but tomorrow.' Today it is time to return. Give me your arm and let us go. Very well, let us go, said Caderousse. But I don't want your arm at all. Come, Fernand, won't you return to Marseille with us? No, said Fernand. I shall return to the Catalans. You're wrong. Come with us to Marseille. Come along. I will not. What do you mean? You will not. Well, just as you like, my prince. There's a liberty for all the world. Come along, Donglar, and let the young gentleman return to Catalans if he chooses. Donglar took advantage of Caderousse's temper at the moment to take him off towards Marseille by the port Saint-Victor staggering as he went. When they advanced about twenty yards, Donglar looked back and saw Fernand stoop, pick up the crumpled paper, and putting it into his pocket, then rush out of the arbor towards Pion. Well, said Caderousse, why, what a lie he told. He said he was going to the Catalans, and he is going to the city. Hello, Fernand. Oh, you don't see straight, said Donglar. He's gone right enough. 
Well, said Caderousse, I should have said not. How treacherous wine is. Come, come, said Danglars to himself. Now the work is at work, and it will effect its purpose unassisted. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Marriage Feast. The morning sun rose clear and resplendent, touching the foamy waves into a network of ruby tinted light. The feast had been made ready on the second floor at La Reserve, with whose arbour the reader is already familiar. The apartment, destined for the purpose, was spacious and lighted by a number of windows, over each of which was written in golden letters, for some inexplicable reason, the name of one of the principal cities of France. Beneath these windows, a wooden balcony extended the entire length of the house, and although the entertainment was fixed for twelve o'clock, an hour previous to that time, the balcony was filled with impatient and expectant guests consisting of the favoured part of the crew of the pharaoh and other personal friends of the bridegroom, the whole of whom had arrayed themselves in their choicest costumes in order to do greater honour to the occasion. Various rumours were afloat to the effect that the owners of the pharaoh had promised to attend the nuptial feast, but all seemed unanimous in doubting that an act of such rare and exceeding condescension could possibly be intended. Donglar, however, who now made his appearance accompanied by Caderousse, effectually confirmed the report, stating that he had recently conversed with Monsieur Morel, who had himself assured him of his intention to dine at La Reserve. In fact, a moment later Monsieur Morel appeared, and was saluted with an enthusiastic burst of applause from the crew of the pharaoh, who hailed the visit of the shipowner as a sure indication that the man whose wedding feast he thus delighted to honour, would ere long be first in command of the ship. And as Dante was universally beloved on board his vessel, the sailors put no restraint on their tumultuous joy at finding that the opinion and choice of their superiors so exactly coincided with their own. With the entrance of Monsieur Morel, Donglas and Caderousse were dispatched in search of the bridegroom to convey to him the intelligence of the arrival of the important personage whose coming had created such a lively sensation, and to beseech him to make haste. Danglars and Caderousse set off upon their errand at full speed, but ere they had gone many steps, they perceived a group advancing towards them, composed of the betrothed pair, a party of young girls in attendance on the bride, by whose side walked Dante's father, the whole brought up by Fernand, whose lips wore their usual sinister smile. Neither Mercedes nor Edmund observed the strange expression of his countenance. They were so happy that they were conscious only of the sunshine and the presence of each other. Having acquitted themselves of their errand, and exchanged a hearty shake of the hand with Edmond, Danglars and Caderousse took their places beside Fernand and old Dante, the latter of whom attracted universal notice. 
The old man was attired in a suit of glistening watered silk, trimmed with steel buttons, beautifully cut and polished. His thin but wiry legs were arrayed in a pair of richly embroidered clocked stockings, evidently of English manufacture, while from his three-cornered hat depended a long streaming knot of white and blue ribbons. Thus he came along, supporting himself on a curiously carved stick, his aged countenance lit up with happiness, looking for all the world like one of the aged dandies of 1796, parading the newly opened garden of the Tuileries and Luxembourg. Beside him glided Caderousse, whose desire to partake of the good things provided for the wedding party had induced him to become reconciled to the Dantes, father and son, although there still lingered in his mind a faint and unperfect recollection of the events of the preceding night, just as the brain retains on waking in the morning the dim and misty outline of a dream. As Dongla approached the disappointed lover, he cast on him a look of deep meaning, while Fernand, as he slowly paced behind the happy pair, who seemed in their own unmixed content to have entirely forgotten that such a being as himself existed, was pale and abstracted. Occasionally, however, a deep flush would overspread his countenance, and a nervous contraction distort his features, while, with an agitated and restless gaze, he would glance in the direction of Marseille, like one who either anticipated or foresaw some great and important event. Dante himself was simply but becomingly clad in the dress peculiar to the merchant service, a costume somewhat between a military and a civil garb, and with his fine countenance, radiant with joy and happiness, a more perfect specimen of manly beauty could scarcely be imagined. Lovely as the Greek girls of Cyprus, or Chios, Mercedes boasted the same bright flashing eyes of jet and ripe round coral lips. She moved with the light free step of an Arlesienne or an Andalusian. One more practice in the arts of great cities would have hid her blushes beneath a veil, or at least have cast down her thickly fringed lashes, so as to conceal the liquid lustre of her animated eyes. But on the contrary, the delighted girl looked around her with a smile that seemed to say, If you are my friends, rejoice with me, for I am very happy. As soon as the bridal party came in sight of La Reserve, Monsieur Morel descended, and came forth to meet it, followed by the soldiers and sailors there assembled, to whom he had repeated the promise already given, that Dante should be the successor to the late Captain Leclerc. Edmond, at the approach of his patron, respectfully placed the arm of his affianced bride within that of Monsieur Morel, who forthwith, conducting her up the flight of wooden steps leading to the chamber in which the feast was prepared, was gaily followed by the guests, beneath whose heavy tread the slight structure creaked and groaned for the space of several minutes. Father, said Mercedes, stopping when she had reached the centre of the table, sit, I pray you, on my right hand. On my left I will place him who has ever been as a brother to me, pointing with a soft and gentle smile to Fernand. But... Her words and look seemed to inflict the direst torture on him, for his lips became ghastly pale, and even beneath the dark hue of his complexion 
The blood might be seen retreating as though some sudden pang drove it back to the heart. During this time, Dante, at the opposite side of the table, had been occupied in similarly placing his most honoured guests. Monsieur Morel was seated at his right hand, Donglars at his left, while at a sign from Edmond, the rest of the company ranged themselves as they found it most agreeable. When they began to pass around the dusky piquant Arlesian sausages and lobsters in their dazzling red cuirass, prawns of large size and brilliant colour, the Echinu, with its prickly outside and dainty morsel within, the Clovis, esteemed by the Epicure of the South as more than rivalling the exquisite flavour of the oyster, all the delicacies, in fact, that are cast up by the wash of waters on the sandy beach, and styled by the grateful fishermen, fruits of the sea. A pretty silence, truly, said the old father of the bridegroom, as he carried to his lips a glass of wine of the hue and brightness of the topaz, and which had just been placed before Mercedes herself. Now, would anybody think that this room contained a happy, merry party, who desired nothing better than to laugh and dance the hours away? Ah, sighed Caderousse, a man cannot always feel happy, because he is about to be married. The truth is, replied Dante, that I am too happy for noisy mirth. If that is what you meant by your observation, my worthy friend, you are right. Joy takes a strange effect at times. It seems to oppress us almost the same as sorrow. Donglar looked towards Fernand, whose excitable nature received and betrayed each fresh impression. Why, what ails you? asked he of Edmond. Do you fear any approaching evil? I should say that you were the happiest man alive at this instant. And that is the very thing that alarms me, returned Dante. Man does not appear to me to be intended to enjoy felicity so unmixed. Happiness is like the enchanted palaces we read in our childhood, where fierce, fiery dragons defend the entrance and approach, and monsters of all shapes and kinds requiring to be overcome ere victory is ours. I own that I am lost in wonder to myself, promoted to an honour of which I feel myself unworthy, that of being the husband of Mercedes. Nay, nay, cried Caderousse, smiling, you have not attained that honour yet. Mercedes is not your wife yet. Just assume the tone and manner of a husband, and see how she will remind you that your hour is not yet come. The bride blushed, while Fernand, restless and uneasy, seemed to start at every fresh sound, and from time to time wiped away the large drops of perspiration that gathered on his brow. Well, never mind that, neighbour Caderousse. It is not worth while to contradict me for such a trifle as that. It is true that Mercedes is not actually my wife yet, but, added he, drawing out his watch, in an hour and a half she will be. A general exclamation of surprise ran round the table, with the exception of the elder Dante, whose laugh displayed the still perfect beauty of his large white teeth. Mercedes looked pleased and gratified, while Fernand grasped the handle of his knife with a convulsive clutch. In an hour? 
inquired Danglars, turning pale. How is that, my friend? Why, thus it is, replied Dante. Thanks to the influence of Monsieur Morel, to whom next to my father I owe every blessing I enjoy, every difficulty has been removed. We have purchased permission to waive the usual delay, and at half-past two o'clock the mayor of Marseilles will be waiting for us at the city hall. Now, as a quarter past one has already struck, I do not consider I have asserted too much in saying that in another hour and thirty minutes, Mercedes will have become Madame Dante. Fernand closed his eyes. A burning sensation passed across his brow, and he was compelled to support himself by the table to prevent his falling from his chair. But in spite of all his efforts, he could not refrain from uttering a deep groan, which, however, was lost amid the noisy felicitations of the company. "'Upon my word!' cried the old man. "'You make short work of this kind of affair. "'Arrived here only yesterday morning, "'and married today at three o'clock. "'Commend me to a sailor for going the quick way to work.' "'But,' asked Danglars in a timid tone, "'how did you manage about the other formality, "'the contract, the settlement?' "'The contract?' answered Dante laughingly. It didn't take long to fix that. Mercedes has no fortune. I have none to settle on her, so you see our papers were quickly written out and certainly do not come very expensive. This joke elicited a fresh burst of applause. So that we presumed to be merely the betrothal feast it turns out to be the actual wedding dinner, said Danglars. No, no, answered Dante. Don't imagine I am going to put you off in that shabby manner. Tomorrow morning I start for Paris, four days to go, and the same to return, with one day to discharge the commission entrusted to me, is all the time I shall be absent. I shall be back here by the first of March, and on the second I give my real marriage feast. This prospect of fresh festivity redoubled the hilarity of the guests to such a degree that the elder Dante, who at the commencement of the repast had com commented upon the silence that prevailed, now found it difficult, amid the general din of voices, to obtain a moment's tranquillity in which to drink to the health and prosperity of the bride and bridegroom. Dante, perceiving the affectionate eagerness of his father, responded by a look of grateful pleasure, while Mercedes glanced at the clock and made an expressive gesture to Edmond. Around the table reigned that noisy hilarity which usually prevails at such a time among people sufficiently free from the demands of social position not to feel the trammels of etiquette. Such as at the commencement of the repast had not been able to seat themselves according to their inclination, rose unceremoniously and sought out more agreeable companions. Everybody talked at once, without waiting for a reply, and each one seemed to be contented with expressing his or her own thoughts. Fernand's paleness appeared to have communicated itself to Danglars. As for Fernand himself, he seemed to be enduring the tortures of the damned. Unable to rest, he was among the first to quit the table, and, as though seeking to avoid the hilarious mirth that rose in such deafening sounds, he continued in utter silence to pace the farther end of the salon.
Calarousse approached him, just as Danglars, whom Fernand seemed most anxious to avoid, had joined him in a corner of the room. "'Upon my word,' said Calarousse, from whose mind the friendly treatment of Dante, united with the effect of the excellent wine he had partaken of, had effaced every feeling of envy or jealousy at Dante's good fortune. "'Upon my word, Dante is a downright good fellow,' And when I see him sitting there beside his pretty wife, that is so soon to be, I cannot help thinking it would have been a great pity to have served him that trick you were planning yesterday. Oh, there was no harm meant, answered Danglars. At first I certainly did feel uh, somewhat uneasy as to what Fernand might be tempted to do, but when I saw how completely he had mastered his feelings, even so far as to become one of his rival's attendants, I knew there was no further cause for apprehension. Caderousse looked full at Fernand. He was ghastly pale. Certainly, continued Danglars, the sacrifice was no trifling one when the beauty of the bride is concerned. Upon my soul, that future captain of mine is a lucky dog. "'God, I only wish he would let me take his place.' "'Shall we not set forth?' asked the sweet silvery voice of Mercedes. Two o'clock has just struck, and you know we are expected in a quarter of an hour.' "'To be sure, to be sure,' cried Dante, eagerly quitting the table. "'Let us go directly.' His words were re-echoed by the whole party with vociferous cheers. At this moment, Danglars, who had been incessantly observing every change in Fernand's look and manner, saw him stagger and fall back, with an almost convulsive spasm, against a seat placed near one of the open windows. At the same instant, his ear caught a sort of indistinct sound on the stairs, followed by the measured tread of soldiery, with the clanking of swords and military accoutrements, then came a hum and buzz as of many voices, so as to deaden even the noisy mirth of the bridal party, among whom a vague feeling of curiosity and apprehension quelled every disposition to talk, and almost instantaneously the most death-like stillness prevailed. The sounds drew nearer. Three blows were struck upon the panel of the door. The company looked at each other in consternation. "'I demand admittance!' said a loud voice outside the room. In the name of the law! As no attempt was made to prevent it, the door was opened and a magistrate, wearing his official scarf, presented himself, followed by four soldiers and a corporal. Uneasiness now yielded to the most extreme dread on the part of those present. May I venture to inquire the reason of this unexpected visit, said Monsieur Morel, addressing the magistrate whom he evidently knew. "'There is, doubtless, some mistake easily explained.' "'If it be so,' replied the magistrate, "'rely upon every reparation being made. Meanwhile, I am the bearer of an order of arrest, and although I must reluctantly perform the task assigned me, it must nevertheless be fulfilled.' "'Who among the persons here assembled answers to the name?' of Edmond Dante. Every eye was turned towards the young man, 
who, spite of the agitation, he could not but feel advanced with dignity, and said in a firm voice, I am he. What is your pleasure with me? Edmond Dante, replied the magistrate, I arrest you in the name of the law. Me? repeated Edmond, slightly changing colour. And wherefore, I pray? I cannot inform you, but you will be duly acquainted with the reasons that have rendered such a step necessary at the preliminary examination. Monsieur Morel felt that further resistance or remonstrance was useless. He saw before him an officer delegated to enforce the law, and perfectly well knew that it would be as unavailing to seek pity from a magistrate decked with his official scarf as to address a petition to some cold marble effigy. Old Dante, however, sprang forward. There are situations which the heart of a father or a mother cannot be made to understand. He prayed and supplicated in terms so moving that even the officer was touched, and although firm in his duty, he kindly said, My worthy friend, let me beg of you to calm your apprehensions. Your son has probably neglected some prescribed form or attention in registering his cargo, and it is more than probable he will be set at liberty directly he has given the information required, whether touching the health of his crew or the value of his freight. What is the meaning of all this? inquired Caderousse frowningly of Danglars, who had assumed an air of utter surprise. How can I tell you? replied he. I am, like yourself, utterly bewildered at all that is going on, and cannot in the least make out what it is about. Caderousse then looked around for Fernand, but he had disappeared. The scene of the previous night now came back to his mind with startling clearness. The painful catastrophe he had just witnessed appeared effectually to have rent away the veil which the intoxication of the evening before had raised between himself and his memory. So, so, said he in a hoarse and choking voice to Danglars, this, then, I suppose, is a part of the trick you were concerting yesterday. All I can say is that if it be so, tis an ill turn and well deserves to bring double evil on those who have projected it. Nonsense, returned Danglars. I tell you again. I have nothing whatever to do with it. Besides, you know very well that I tore the paper to pieces. No, you did not, answered Caderousse. You merely threw it. I saw it lying in a corner. Hold your tongue, you fool. What should you know about it? Why, you were drunk. Where is Fernand? inquired Caderousse. How do I know? replied Danglars. Gone as every prudent man ought to be, to look after his own affairs, most likely. Never mind where he is. Let you and I go and see what is to be done for our poor friends. During this conversation, Dante, after having exchanged a cheerful shake of the hand with all his sympathizing friends, had surrendered himself to the officer sent to arrest him, merely saying, Make yourselves quite easy, my good fellows. There is some little mistake to clear up. That's all. Depend upon it. And very likely I may not have to go so far as the prison to effect that.
Oh, to be sure, responded Danglars, who had now approached the group. Nothing more than a mistake. I feel quite certain. Dante descended the staircase, preceded by the magistrate and followed by the soldiers. A carriage awaited him at the door. He got in, followed by two soldiers and the magistrate, and the vehicle drove off towards Marseille. Adieu, adieu, dearest Edmond, cried Mercedes, stretching out her arms to him from the balcony. The prisoner heard the cry, which sounded like the sob of a broken heart, and leaning from the coach he called out, Goodbye, Mercedes, we shall soon meet again. Then the vehicle disappeared round one of the turnings of Fort Saint-Nicolas. Wait for me here, all of you, cried Monsieur Morel. I will take the first conveyance. I find and hurry to Marseille, whence I will bring you word how all is going on. That's right, exclaimed a multitude of voices. Go, and return as quickly as you can. This second departure was followed by a long and fearful state of terrified silence on the part of those who were left behind. The old father and Mercedes remained for some time apart, each absorbed in grief. But at length the two poor victims of the same blow raised their eyes and, with simultaneous burst of feeling, rushed into each other's arms. Meanwhile, Fernand made his appearance, poured out for himself a glass of water with a trembling hand, then hastily swallowing it, went to sit down at the first vacant place, and this was, by mere chance, placed next to the seat on which poor Mercedes had fallen, half-fainting. When released from the warm and affectionate embrace of old Dante, instinctively Fernand drew back his chair. "'He is the cause of all this misery. I am quite sure of it.' whispered Caderousse, who had never taken his eyes off Fernand to Danglars. "'I don't think so,' answered the other. "'He's too stupid to imagine such a scheme. "'I only hope the mischief will fall upon the head of whoever wrought it.' "'You don't mention those who aided and abetted the deed,' said Caderousse. "'Surely,' answered Danglars, one cannot be held responsible for every chance arrow shot into the air. You can indeed, when the arrow lights point downward on somebody's head. Meantime, the subject of the arrest was being canvassed in every different form. What think you, Donglar? said one of the party, turning towards him, of this event. Why, replied he, I think it just possible... Dante may have been detected with some trifling article on board ship, considered here as a contraband. But how could he have done so without your knowledge, Danglars, since you are the ship's supercargo? Why, as for that, I could only know what I was told respecting the merchandise with which the vessel was laden. I know she was loaded with cotton, and that she took in a freight at Alexandria from Pastre's warehouse and at Smyrna from Pascal's. That is all I was obliged to know, and I beg I may not be asked for any further particulars. Now, I recollect, said the afflicted old father, my poor boy told me yesterday he had got a small case of coffee and another of tobacco for me. There, 
you see, exclaimed Danglars, and now the mischief is out. Depend upon it. The custom house people went rummaging about the ship in our absence and discovered poor Dante's hidden treasures. Mercedes, however, paid no heed to this explanation of her lover's arrest. Her grief, which she had hitherto tried to restrain, now burst out in a violent fit of hysterical sobbing. Come, come, said the old man. Be comforted, my poor child. There is still hope. Hope, repeated Danglars. Hope, faintly murmured Fernand, but the words seemed to die away on his pale, agitated lips, and a convulsive spasm passed over his countenance. Good news, a good news, shouted forth one of the party stationed in the balcony on the lookout. Here comes Monsieur Morel back. No doubt now we shall hear that our friend is released. Mercedes and the old man rushed to meet the shipowner and greeted him at the door. He was very pale. What news? exclaimed a general burst of voices. Alas, my friends, replied Monsieur Morel with a mournful shake of his head. The thing has assumed a more serious aspect than I expected. Oh, indeed, indeed, sir, he is innocent, sobbed forth Mercedes. That, I believe, answered Monsieur Morel, but still he is charged. With what? inquired the elder Dante. With being an agent of the Bonapartist faction. And many of our readers may be able to recollect how formidable such an accusation became in the period of which our story is dated. A despairing cry escaped the pale lips of Mercedes. The old man sank into a chair. Ah, Donglar, whispered Caderousse, you have deceived me. The trick you spoke of last night has been played, but I cannot suffer a poor old man or an innocent girl to die of grief through your fault. I am determined to tell them all about it. Be silent, you simpleton, cried Danglars, grasping him by the arm, or I will not answer even for your own safety. Who can tell whether Dante be innocent or guilty? The vessel did touch at Elba, where he quitted it and passed a whole day in the island. Now, should any letters or other documents of a compromising character be found upon him? Will it not be taken for granted that all who uphold him are his accomplice? With the rapid instinct of selfishness, Caderousse readily perceived the solidity of this mode of reasoning. He gazed doubtfully, wistfully on Danglars, and then caution supplanted generosity. Suppose we wait a while and see what comes of it, said he, casting a bewildered look on his companion. To be sure, answered Danglars, let us wait, by all means. If he be innocent, of course he will be set at liberty. If guilty, why, it is no use involving ourselves in a conspiracy. Let us go, then. I cannot stay here any longer. With all my heart, replied Danglars, pleased to find the other so tractable. Let us take ourselves out of the way, and leave things for the present to take their course. After their departure, 
Fernand, who had now again become the friend and protector of Mercedes, led the girl to her home, while the friends of Dante conducted the now half-fainting man back to his abode. The rumour of Edmond's arrest as a Bonapartist agent was not slow in circulating throughout the city. "'Could you ever have credited such a thing, my dear Donglars?' asked Monsieur Morel, as on his return to the port for the purpose of gleaning fresh tidings of Dante from Monsieur de Villefort, the assistant procureur, he overtook his supercargo and Caderousse. "'Could you believe such a thing possible?' "'Why, you know I told you,' replied Danglars, "'that I considered the circumstance of his having anchored at the island of Elba "'as a very suspicious circumstance.' "'And did you mention these suspicions to any person beside myself?' "'Certainly not,' returned Danglars, then added in a low whisper, "'You understand that on account of your uncle, monsieur, Policar Morel, who served under the other government, and who does not altogether conceal what he thinks on the subject, you are strongly suspected of regretting the abdication of Napoleon. I should have feared to injure both Edmund and yourself, had I divulged my own apprehensions to a soul. I am too well aware that, though a subordinate like myself, is bound to acquaint the shipowner with everything that occurs, there are many things he ought most carefully to conceal from all else. "'Tis well, Danglars, tis well,' replied Monsieur Morel. "'You are a worthy fellow, and I had already thought of your interests in the event of poor Edmond having become captain of the Ferron. "'Is it possible you were so kind?' "'Yes, indeed.' I had previously inquired of Dante what was his opinion of you, and if he should have any reluctance to continue you in your post, for somehow I have perceived a sort of coolness between you. And what was his reply? That he certainly did think he had given you offence in an affair which he merely referred to without entering into any particulars, but that whoever possessed the good opinion and confidence of the ship's owner would have his preference also. The hypocrite, murmured Danglars. Poor Dante, said Caderousse, no one can deny his being a noble-hearted young fellow. But meanwhile, continued Miss Morel, here is the pharaoh without a captain. Oh, replied Danglars, since we cannot leave this port for the next three months, let us hope that ere the expiration of that period Dante will be set at liberty. No doubt, but in the meantime... I am entirely at your service, Monsieur Morel, answered Danglars. You know that I am as capable of managing a ship as the most experienced captain in the service, and it will be so far advantageous to you to accept my service that upon Edmund's release from prison no further change will be requisite on board the Ferron than for Dante and myself each to resume our respective posts. Thanks, Donglar. That will smooth over all difficulty. I fully authorize you at once to assume the command of the Ferron, and look carefully to the unloading of her freight. Private misfortune must never be allowed to interfere with business. 
Be easy on that score, Monsieur Well. But do you think we shall be permitted to see our poor Edmond? I will let you know that directly. I have seen Monsieur de Villefort, whom I shall endeavour to interest in Edmond's favour. I am aware he is a furious royalist, but in spite of that, and of his being a king's attorney, he is a man like yourselves, and I fancy not a bad sort of one. Perhaps not, replied Danglars, but I hear that he is ambitious, and that's rather against him. Well, well, returned Monsieur Morel, we shall see. But now, hasten on board. I will join you there ere long. So saying, the worthy shipowner quitted the two allies, and proceeded in the direction of the Palais de Justice. You see, said Danglars, addressing Caderousse, the turn that things have taken. Do you still feel any desire to stand up in his defence? Not the slightest, but yet it seems to me a shocking thing, that a mere joke should lead to such consequences. But who perpetrated that joke? Let me ask. Neither you nor myself. But, Fernand, you knew very well that I threw the paper into a corner of the room. Indeed, I fancied I had destroyed it. Oh, no, replied Caderousse. That I can answer for you. You did not. I only wish I could see it now as plainly as I saw it lying, all crushed and crumpled in a corner of the arbor. Well, then. If you did, depend upon it, Fernand picked it up and either copied it or caused it to be copied. Perhaps even he did not take the trouble of recopying it. And now I think of it, by heavens, he may have sent the letter himself. Fortunately for me, the handwriting was disguised. Then you are aware of Dante being engaged in a conspiracy? Not I. As I before said, I thought the whole thing was a joke, nothing more. It seems, however, that I have unconsciously stumbled upon the truth. Still, argued Caderousse, I would give a great deal if nothing of the kind had happened, or at least that I had had no hand in it. You will see, Danglars, that it will turn out an unlucky job for both of us. Nonsense. If any harm come of it, it should fall on the guilty person. And that you know is Fernand. How can we be implicated in any way? All we have to do is to keep our own counsel and remain perfectly quiet, not breathing a word to any living soul. And you will see that the storm will pass away without in the least affecting us. Amen responded Caderousse, waving his hand in token of adieu to Donglars, and bending his steps towards the Allée de Meillon, moving his head to and fro, and muttering as he went, after the manner of one whose mind was overcharged with one absorbing idea. So far, then, said Donglars, mentally, all has gone as I would have it. I am temporarily commander of the Pharaon, with the certainty of being permanently so, if that fool of a Caderousse can be persuaded to hold his tongue. My only fear is the chance of Dante being released. But there he is in the hands of justice. And, added he with a smile, 
she will take her own. So saying, he leapt into a boat, desiring to be rowed on board the Pharaon, where Monsieur Morel had agreed to meet him. End of chapter 5「Chapter Six, The Deputy Procureur du Roi In one of the aristocratic mansions built by Puget in the Rue du Grand Cour, opposite the Medusa Fountain, a second marriage feast was being celebrated, almost at the same hour with the nuptial repast given by Dante. In this case, however, although the occasion of the entertainment was similar, the company was strikingly dissimilar. Instead of a rude mixture of sailors, soldiers, and those belonging to the humblest grade of life, the present assembly was composed of the very flower of Marseille society. Magistrates, who had resigned their office during the usurper's reign, officers who had deserted from the imperial army and joined forces with Conde, and younger members of families brought up to hate and execrate the man whom five years of exile would convert into a martyr, and fifteen of restoration elevate to the rank of a god. The guests were still at table, and the heated and energetic conversation that prevailed betrayed the violent and vindictive passions that then agitated each dweller of the South, where, unhappily, for five centuries religious strife had long given increased bitterness to the violence of party feeling. The emperor, now king of the petty island of Elba, after having held sovereign sway over one half of the world, counting as his subjects a small population of five or six thousand souls, after having been accustomed to hear the vive Napoleon of a hundred and twenty millions of human beings uttered in ten different languages, was looked upon here as a ruined man, separated forever from any fresh connection with France or claim to her throne. The magistrates freely discussed their political views. The military part of the company talked unreservedly of Moscow and Leipzig, while the women commented on the divorce of Josephine. It was not over the downfall of the man, but over the defeat of the Napoleonic idea that they rejoiced, and this they foresaw for themselves the bright and cheering prospect of a revivified political existence. An old man, decorated with the cross of Saint-Louis, now rose and proposed the health of King Louis XVIII. It was the Marquis de Saint-Méran. This toast, recalling at once the patient exile of Hartwell and the peace-loving King of France, excited universal enthusiasm. Glasses were elevated in the air à l'anglais, and the ladies, snatching their bouquet from their fair bosoms, strewed the table with their floral treasures. In a word, an almost poetic fervour prevailed. Ah, said the Marquise de Saint-Marin, a woman with a stern, forbidding eye, though still noble and distinguished in appearance, despite her fifty years. Ah, these revolutionists, who have driven us from those very positions they afterwards purchased for a mere trifle during the reign of terror, would be compelled to own, were they here, that all true devotion was on our side, since we were content to follow the fortunes of a falling monarch, while they, on the contrary, made their fortune by worshipping the rising sun. 
Yes, yes, they could not help admitting that the king for whom we sacrificed rank, wealth, and station was truly our Louis the Well-Beloved, while their wretched usurper, his been and ever will be to them, their evil genius, their Napoleon the Accursed. Am I not right, Villefort? I beg your pardon, madame. I really must pray to you to excuse me, but, in truth, I was not attending to the conversation. Marquise, Marquise, interposed the old nobleman who had proposed the toast, let the young people alone. Let me tell you, on one's wedding day, there are more agreeable subjects of conversation than dry politics. Never mind, dearest mother said a young and lovely girl with a profusion of light brown hair and eyes that seemed to float in liquid crystal. "'Tis all my fault for seizing upon Monsieur de Villefort so as to prevent his listening to what you said. But there, now take him. He is your own for as long as you like. Monsieur Villefort, I beg to remind you, my mother speaks to you. "'If the Marquise will deign to repeat the words,' I but imperfectly caught, I shall be delighted to answer, said Monsieur Villefort. Never mind, René, replied the Marquise with a look of tenderness that seemed out of keeping with her harsh, dry features. But however all other feelings may be withered in a woman's nature, there is always one bright smiling spot in the desert of her heart, and that is the shrine of maternal love. I forgive you. What I was saying, Villefort, was that the Bonapartist had not our sincerity, enthusiasm, or devotion. They had, however, what supplied the place of those fine qualities, replied the young man, and that was fanaticism, Napoleon is the Mohammed of the West, and is worshipped by his commonplace but ambitious followers, not only as a leader and lawgiver, but also as the personification of equality. He cried the Marquise. Napoleon, the type of equality, for mercy's sake, then what would you call Robespierre? Come, come, do not strip the latter of his just rights to bestow them on the Corsican, who to my mind has usurped quite enough. Nay, madame, I would place each of these heroes on his right pedestal, that of Robespierre on his scaffold in the Place Louis XV, that of Napoleon on the column of the Place of Vendôme. The only difference consists in the opposite character of the equality advocated by these two men. One is the equality that elevates, the other is the equality that degrades. One brings a king within reach of the guillotine, the other elevates the people to a level with the throne. Observe, said Villefort, smiling. I do not mean to deny that both these men were revolutionary scoundrels, and that the ninth Thermidor and the 4th of April in the year 1814 were lucky days for France, worthy of being gratefully remembered by every friend to monarchy and civil order. And that explains how it comes to pass that fallen, as I trust he is forever, Napoleon is still retained a train of parasitical satellites. Still, Marquise, it has been so with other usurpers, a Cromwell, for instance, who was not half so bad as Napoleon, had his partisans and advocates. 
do you know, Villefort, that you are talking in a most dreadfully revolutionary strain? But I excuse it. It is impossible to expect the son of a Girondin to be free from a small spice of the old leaven. A deep crimson suffused the countenance of Villefort. "'Tis true, madame,' answered he, "'that my father was a Girondin, "'but he was not among the number "'of those who voted for the king's death. "'He was an equal sufferer with yourself "'during the reign of terror, "'and had well nigh lost his head "'on the same scaffold on which your father perished.' "'True,' replied the Marquise, "'without wincing in the slightest degree "'at the tragic remembrance thus called up. "'But bear in mind, if you please, "'that our respective parents underwent persecution and proscription "'from diametrically opposed principles, "'in proof of which I may remark "'that while my family remained among the staunchest adherents "'of the exiled princes, "'your father lost no time in joining the new government, "'and that while the citizen Noirtier was a Girondin, "'the Count Noirtier became a senator.' Dear mother, interposed René, you know very well it was agreed that all these disagreeable reminiscences should forever be laid aside. Suffer me also, madame, replied Villefort, to add my earnest request to Mademoiselle de Saint-Marin's that you will kindly allow the veil of oblivion to cover and conceal the past. What avails recrimination over martyrs holy past recall for my own part i have laid aside even the name of my father and altogether disown his political principles he was nay probably may still be a bonapartist and is called noirtier i on the contrary am a staunch royalist and style myself de villefort let what may remain of revolutionary sap exhaust itself and die away with the old trunk, and condescend only to regard the young shoot which has started up at a distance from the parent tree, without having the power any more than the wish to separate entirely from the stock from which it sprung. Bravo, Villefort, cried the Marquis. Excellently well said. Come now. I have hopes of obtaining what I have been for years endeavouring to persuade the Marquise to promise, namely a perfect amnesty and forgetfulness of the past. With all my heart, replied the Marquise, let the past be forever forgotten. I promise you it affords me as little pleasure to revive it as it does you. All I ask is that the Villefort will be firm and inflexible for the future, in his political principles. Remember also, Villefort, that we have pledged ourselves to his majesty for your fealty and strict loyalty, and that at our recommendation the king consented to forget the past as I do. And here she extended to him her hand, as I now do at your entreaty. But bear in mind that should there fall in your way anyone guilty of conspiring against the government, you will be so much the more bound to visit the offence with rigorous punishment, as it is known you belong to a suspected family. Also, madame, returned Villefort, 
My profession, as well as the times in which we live, compels me to be severe. I have already successfully conducted several public prosecutions and brought the offenders to merited punishment. But we have not done with the thing yet. Do you indeed think so? inquired the Marquise. I am at last fearful of it. Napoleon in the island of Elba is too near France, and his proximity keeps up the hopes of his partisans. Marseille is filled with half-pay of officers who are daily under one frivolous pretext or other getting up quarrels with the royalists. From hence arise continual and fatal duels among the higher classes of persons and assassinations in the lower. You have heard, perhaps, said the Comte de Salvieux, one of Monsieur de Saint-Marin's oldest friends, and Chamberlain to the Comte d'Artois, that the Holy Alliance propose removing him from thence. Yes, they were talking about it when we left Paris, said Monsieur de Saint-Marin. And where is it decided to transfer him? To St. Helena. For heaven's sake, where is that? asked the Marquise. An island situated on the other side of the equator, at least two thousand leagues from here, replied the Count. So much the better. As Villefort observes, it is a great act of folly to have left such a man between Corsica, where he was born, and Naples, of which his brother-in-law is king, and face to face with Italy, the sovereignty of which he coveted for his son. Unfortunately, said Villefort, there are treaties of 1814, and we cannot molest Napoleon without breaking those compacts. Oh, well, we shall find some way out of it, responded Monsieur de Salvieux. There wasn't any trouble over treaties when it was a question of shooting the poor Duc d'Anguien. Well, said the Marquise, it seems probable that by the aid of the Holy Alliance we shall be rid of Napoleon, and we must trust to the vigilance of Monsieur de Villefort to purify Marseille of his partisans. The king is either a king or no king. If he be acknowledged as sovereign of France, he should be upheld in peace and tranquillity, and this can best be effected by employing the most inflexible agents to put down every attempt at conspiracy. It is the best and surest means of preventing mischief. Unfortunately, madame, answered Villefort, the strong arm of the law is not called upon to interfere until the evil has taken place. Then all he has got to do is to endeavour to repair it. Nay, madame, the law is frequently powerless to effect this. All it can do is to avenge the wrong done. Oh, Monsieur de Villefort, cried a beautiful young creature, daughter to the Comte de Salvieux and the cherished friend of Mademoiselle de Saint-Méran. Do try and get up some famous trial while we are at Marseille. I never was in a law court. I am told it is so very amusing. Amusing, certainly, replied the young man, inasmuch as instead of shedding tears, as at the fictitious tale of woe produced at a theatre, you behold in a law court a case of real and genuine distress. 
a drama of life. The prisoner, whom you were there see pale, agitated, and alarmed, instead of, as is the case when a curtain falls on a tragedy, going home to supper peacefully with his family, and then retiring to rest, that he may recommence his mimic woes on the morrow, is removed from your sight, merely to be reconducted to his prison and delivered up to the executioner. I leave you to judge how far your nerves are calculated to bear you through such a scene. Of this, however, be assured, that should any favourable opportunity present itself, I will not fail to offer you the choice of being present. For shame, Monsieur de Villefort, said René, becoming quite pale. Don't you see how you are frightening us? And yet you laugh. What would you have? Tis like a duel. I have already recorded sentence of death five or six times against the movers of political conspiracies, and who can say how many daggers may be ready sharpened and only waiting a favourable opportunity to be buried in my heart? Gracious heavens, Monsieur de Villefort, said René, becoming more and more terrified, you surely are not in earnest. Indeed I am, replied the young magistrate with a smile. And in the interesting trial that young lady is anxious to witness, the case would only be still more aggravated. Suppose, for instance, the prisoner, as is more than probable, to have served under Napoleon. Well, can you expect for an instant that one accustomed, at the word of his commander, to rush fearlessly on the very bayonets of his foe, will scruple more to drive a stiletto into the art of one he knows to be his personal enemy, than to slaughter his fellow creatures merely because bidden to do so by one he is bound to obey. Besides, one requires the excitement of being hateful in the eyes of the accused, in order to lash oneself into a state of sufficient vehemence and power. I would not choose to see the man against whom I pleaded smile as though in mockery of my words. No, my pride is to see the accused pale, agitated, and as though beaten out of all composure by the fire of my eloquence. René uttered a smothered exclamation. Bravo, cried one of the guests. That is what I call talking to some purpose. Just the person we require at a time like the present, said a second. What... A splendid business that last case of yours was, my dear Villefort, remarked a third. I mean the trial of the man for murdering his father. Upon my word, you killed him ere the executioner had laid his hand upon him. Oh, as for parricides and such dreadful people as that, interposed René, it matters very little what is done to them. But as regards poor unfortunate creatures, whose only crime consists in having mixed themselves up in political intrigues. Why, that is the very worst offence they could possibly commit. For don't you see, René, the king is the father of his people, and he who shall plot or contrive aught against the life and safety of the parent of thirty-two millions of souls is a parricide upon a fearfully great scale. I don't know anything about that, replied René. But, Monsieur de Villefort, you have promised me, have you not, 
always to show mercy to those I plead for. Make yourself quite easy on that point, answered Villefort, with one of his sweetest smiles. You and I will always consult upon our verdicts. My love, said the Marquise, attend to your doves, your lapdogs and embroidery, but do not meddle with what you do not understand. Nowadays, the military profession is in abeyance, and the magisterial robe is the badge of honour. There is a wise Latin proverb that is very much in point. Sedant arma toge, said Villefort with a bow. I cannot speak Latin, responded the Marquise. Well, said René, I cannot help regretting that you had not chosen some other profession than your own. A physician, for instance. Do you know I always felt a shudder at the idea of even a destroying angel? Dear, good René, whispered Villefort, as he gazed with unutterable tenderness on the lovely speaker. Let us hope, my child, cried the Marquis, that Monsieur de Villefort may prove the moral and political physician of this providence. If so, he will have achieved a noble work. And one which will go far to efface the recollection of his father's conduct, added the incorrigible Marquise. Madam, replied Villefort, with a mournful smile, I have already had the honour to observe that my father has at least, I hope so, abjured his past errors, and that he is, at the present moment, a firm and zealous friend to religion and order. A better royalist, possibly, than his son, for he has to atone for past dereliction, while I have no other impulse than warm, decided preference and conviction. Having made his well-turned speech, Villefort looked carefully around to mark the effect of his oratory, much as he would have done had he been addressing the bench in open court. "'Do you know, my dear Villefort,' cried the Comte de Salvieu, "'that is exactly what I myself said the other day at the Tuileries, when questioned by His Majesty's principal chamberlain, touching the singularity of an alliance between the son of our Girondin and the daughter of an officer of the Duc de Conde. And I assure you, he seemed fully to comprehend that this mode of reconciling political differences was based upon sound and excellent principles. Then the king, who, without our suspecting it, had overheard our conversation, interrupted us by saying, Villefort. Observe that the king did not pronounce the word Noirtier, but on the contrary placed considerable emphasis on that of Villefort. Villefort, said his majesty, is a young man of great judgment and discretion, who will be sure to make a figure in his profession. I like him much, and it gave me great pleasure to hear that he was about to become the son-in-law of the Marquis and Marquise de Saint-Maron. I should myself have recommended the match, had not the noble Marquis anticipated my wishes by requesting my consent to it. Is it possible the king could have condescended so far as to express himself so favourably of me? asked the enraptured Villefort. 
I give you his very words, and if the Marquis chose to be candid, he will confess that they perfectly agree with what his majesty said to him, when he went six months ago to consult him upon the subject of your espousing his daughter. Uh, that is true, answered the Marquis. How much do I owe this gracious prince? What is there I would not do to evince my earnest gratitude? That is right, cried the Marquise. I love to see you thus. Now then, with a conspirator to fall into your hands, he would be most welcome. For my part, dear mother, interposed René, I trust your wishes will not prosper, and that providence will only permit petty offenders, poor debtors, and miserable cheats to fall into Monsieur de Villefort's hands. Then I shall be contented. Just as the same as though you prayed that a physician might only be called upon to prescribe for headaches, measles, and the stings of wasps, or any other slight affection of the epidermis, if you wish to see me the king's attorney, you must desire for me some of those violent and dangerous diseases, from the cure of which so much honour rebounds to the physician. At this moment, and as though the utterance of Villefort's wish had suffered to effect its accomplishment, a servant entered the room, and whispered a few words in his ear. Villefort immediately rose from table, and quitted the room upon the plea of urgent business. He soon, however, returned, his whole face beaming with delight. René regarded him with fond affection, and certainly his handsome features lit up, as they then were with more than usual fire, and animation seemed formed to excite the innocent admiration with which she gazed on her graceful and intelligent lover. "'You were wishing just now,' said Villefort, addressing her, "'that I were a doctor instead of a lawyer. "'Well, at least resemble the disciples of Esculapius in wanting, "'that of not being able to call a day of my own, "'not even that of my betrothal.' "'And wherefore were you called away just now?' asked Mademoiselle de Saint-Méron, with an air of deep interest. "'For a very serious matter.' which bids fair to make work for the executioner. How dreadful, exclaimed René, turning pale. Is it possible, burst simultaneously from all who were near enough to the magistrate to hear his words. Why, if my information prove correct, a sort of Bonaparte conspiracy has just been discovered. Can I believe my ears, cried the Marquise. I will read you the letter containing the accusation at least, said Villefort. <clears throat> the king's attorney is informed by a friend to the throne and the religious institutions of his country that one named Edmond Dante, mate of the ship Ferron, this day arrived from Smyrna, after having touched at Naples and Porto Ferraio, has been the bearer of a letter from Murat to the usurper, and again taken charge of another letter from the usurper to the Bonapartist club in Paris. Ample corroboration of this statement may be obtained by arresting the above-mentioned Edmond Dante, who either carries the letter for Paris about with him, or has it at his father's abode. Should it not be found in the possession of father or son, then it will be assuredly be discovered in the cabin belonging to the said Dante on board the Ferron. But, 
said René. This letter, which after all is but an anonymous scrawl, is not even addressed to you, but to the king's attorney. True, but the gentleman being absent, his secretary, by his orders, opened his letters, thinking this one of importance. He sent for me, but not finding me, took upon himself to give the necessary orders for arresting the accused party. Then the guilty person is absolutely in custody, said the Marquise. Nay, dear mother, say the accused person. You know we cannot yet pronounce him guilty. He is in safe custody, answered Villefort, and rely upon it, if the letter is found, he will not be likely to be trusted abroad again, unless he goes forth under the especial protection of the headsman. And where is the unfortunate being? asked René. He is at my house. Come, come, my dear friend, interrupted the Marquise. Do not neglect your duty to linger with us. You are the king's servant, and must go wherever that service calls you. Oh, Villefort, cried René, clasping her hands and looking towards her lover with piteous earnestness. Be merciful on this day of our betrothal. The young man passed round to the side of the table where the fair pleader sat, and leaning over her chair said tenderly, To give you pleasure, my sweet René, I promise to show all the lenity in my power. But if the charges brought against this Bonapartist hero prove correct, why then, you really must give me leave to order his head to be cut off. René shuddered. Never mind that foolish girl, Villefort, said the Marquise. She will soon get over these things. So saying, Madame de Saint-Marin extended her dry, bony hand to Villefort, who, while imprinting a son-in-law's respectful salute on it, looked at René as much as to say, I must try and fancy it is your dear hand I kiss, as it should have been. These are mournful auspices to accompany a betrothal, sighed poor René. Upon my word, child, exclaimed the angry Marquise, your folly exceeds all bounds. I should be glad to know what connection there can possibly be between your sickly sentimentality and the affairs of the state. Oh, mother, murmured René. Uh, nay, madam, I pray you pardon this little traitor. I promise you that to make up for her want of loyalty, I will be most inflexible severe. Then casting an expressive glance at his betrothed, which seemed to say, Fear not, for your dear sake my justice shall be tempered with mercy. And receiving a sweet and approving smile in return, Villefort quitted the room. End of chapter 6「Chapter seven, The Examination No sooner had Villefort left the salon than he assumed the grave air of a man who holds the balance of life and death in his hands. Now, in spite of the nobility of his countenance, the command of which, like a finished actor, he had carefully studied before the glass, it was by no means easy for him to assume an air of judicial severity. 
except the recollection of the line of politics his father had adopted, and which might interfere, unless he acted with the greatest prudence with his own career, Girard de Villefort was as happy as a man could be. Already rich, he held a high official situation, though only twenty-seven. He was about to marry a young and charming woman, whom he loved, not passionately, but reasonably, as became a deputy attorney of the king, and besides her personal attractions, which were very great, Mademoiselle de Saint-Morin's family possessed considerable political influence, which they would, of course, exert in his favour. The dowry of his wife amounted to fifty thousand crowns, and he had, besides, the prospect of seeing her fortune increased to half a million at her father's death. These considerations naturally gave Villefort a feeling of such complete felicity that his mind was fairly dazzled in its contemplation. At the door he met the commissary of police, who was waiting for him. The sight of this officer recalled Villefort from the third heaven to earth. He composed his face, as we have before described, and said, I have read the letter, sir, and you have acted rightly in arresting this man. Now inform me what you have discovered concerning him and the conspiracy. We know nothing as yet of the conspiracy, monsieur. All the papers found have been sealed up and placed on your desk. The prisoner himself is named Edmond Dante, mate on board the three-master, the pharaohan, trading in cotton with Alexandre and Smyrna, and belonging to Morel and son of Marseille. Before he entered the merchant service, had he ever served in the marines? Oh no, monsieur, he is very young. How old? Nineteen or twenty at the most. At this moment, and as Villefort had arrived at the corner of the Rue du Conseil, a man who seemed to have been waiting for him approached. It was Monsieur Morel. Ah, Monsieur de Villefort, cried he. I am delighted to see you. Some of your people have committed the strangest mistake. They have just arrested Edmond Dante, mate of my vessel. I know it, monsieur, replied Villefort, and I am now going to examine him. Oh, said Morel, carried away by his friendship, you do not know him, and I do. He is the most estimable, the most trustworthy creature in the world, and I will venture to say... There is not a better seaman in all the merchant service. Oh, Monsieur de Villefort, I beseech your indulgence for him. Villefort, as we have seen, belonged to the aristocratic party at Marseille, Morel to the plebeian. The first was a royalist, the other suspected of Bonapartism. Villefort looked disdainfully at Morel and replied, you are aware, monsieur, that a man may be estimable and trustworthy in private life, and the best seaman in the merchant service, and yet be, politically speaking, a great criminal. Is it not true? The magistrate laid emphasis on these words, as if he wished to apply them to the owner himself, while his eyes seemed to plunge into the heart of one who, interceding for another, had himself need of indulgence. Morel reddened, for his own conscience was not quite clear on politics, besides what Dante had told him of his interview with the Grand Marshal, and what the Emperor had said to him embarrassed him. He replied, however, 
I entreat you, Monsieur de Villefort, be as you always are, kind and equitable, and give him back to us soon. This give us sounded revolutionary in the deputy's ears. Aha, murmured he, is Dante then a member of some carbonari society that his protector thus employs the collective form? He was, if I recollect, arrested in a tavern in company with great many others. Then he added, Monsieur, you may rest assured I shall perform my duty impartially, and that if he be innocent you shall not have appealed to me in vain. Should he, however, be guilty in his present epoch, impunity would furnish a dangerous example, and I must do my duty. As he had now arrived at the door of his own house, which adjoined the Palais de Justice, he entered, after having coldly saluted the shipowner, who stood as if petrified on the spot where Villefort had left him. The antechamber was full of police agents and gendarmes, in the midst of whom, carefully watched, but calm and smiling, stood the prisoner. Villefort traversed the antechamber, cast a side glance at Dante, and taking a packet which a gendarme offered him, disappeared, saying, Bring in the prisoner. Rapid as had been Villefort's glance, it had served to give him an idea of the man he was about to interrogate. He had recognized intelligence in the high forehead, courage in the dark eye and bent brow, and frankness in the thick lips that showed a set of pearly teeth. Villefort's first impression was favorable but he had been so often warned to mistrust first impulses that he applied the maxim to the impression, forgetting the difference between the two words. He stifled, therefore, the feelings of compassion that were rising, composed his features, and sat down, grim and sombre, at his desk. An instant after Dante entered, he was pale but calm and collected, and, saluting his judge with easy politeness, looked round for a seat as if he had been in Monsieur Morel's salon. It was then that he encountered for the first time Villefort's look, that look peculiar to the magistrate, who, while seeming to read the thoughts of others, betrays nothing of his own. "'Who and what are you?' demanded Villefort, turning over a pile of papers containing information relative to the prisoner that a police agent had given to him on his entry." and that already in an hour's time had swelled to voluminous proportions, thanks to the corrupt espionage of which the accused is always made the victim. "'My name is Edmond Dante,' replied the young man calmly. "'I am mate of the Ferron, belonging to Messrs. Morel and Son.' "'Your age?' continued Villefort. Nineteen, returned Dante. "'What were you doing at the moment you were arrested?' I was at the festival of my marriage, monsieur, said the young man, his voice slightly tremulous. So great was the contrast between that happy moment and the painful ceremony he was now undergoing. So great was the contrast between the sombre aspect of Monsieur de Villefort and the radiant face of Mercedes. You were at the festival of your marriage, said the deputy, shuddering in spite of himself. Yes, monsieur. I am on the point of marrying a young girl I have been attached to for three years. Villefort, impassive as he was, was struck with this coincidence, and the tremulous voice of Dante, 
surprised in the midst of his happiness, struck a sympathetic chord in his own bosom. He also was on the point of being married, and he was summoned from his own happiness to destroy that of another. This philosophic reflection, thought he, will make a great sensation at Monsieur de saint Marans, and he arranged mentally, while Dante awaited further questions, the antithesis by which orators often create a reputation for eloquence. When this speech was arranged, Villefort turned to Dante. Go on, sir, said he. What would you have me say? Give all the information in your power. Tell me on which point you desire information, and I will tell you all I know. Only, he added with a smile, I warn you, I know very little. Have you served under the usurper? I was about to be mustered into the Royal Marines when he fell. It is reported your political opinions are extreme, said Villefort, who had never heard anything of the kind, but was not sorry to make this inquiry, as if it were an accusation. My political opinions, replied Dante. Alas, sir, I never had any opinions. I am hardly nineteen. I know nothing. I have no part to play. If I obtain the situation I desire, I shall owe it to Monsieur Morel. Thus all my opinions, I will not say public, but private, are confined to these three sentiments. I love my father, I respect Monsieur Morel, and I adore Mercedes. This, sir, is all I can tell you, and you see how uninteresting it is. As Dante spoke, Villefort gazed at his ingenuous and open countenance, and recollected the words of René, who, without knowing who the culprit was, had besought his indulgence for him. With the deputy's knowledge of crime and criminals, every word the young man uttered convinced him more and more of his innocence. This lad, for he was scarcely a man, simple, natural, eloquent with that eloquence of the heart, never found when sought for, full of affection for everybody because he was happy and because happiness renders even the wicked good, extended his affection even to his judge, spite of Villefort's severe look and stern accent. Dante seemed full of kindness. Pardieu, said Villefort, he is a noble fellow. I hope I shall gain René's favour easily by obeying the first command she ever imposed on me. I shall have at least a pressure of the hand in public, and a sweet kiss in private. Full of this idea, Villefort's face became so joyous that when he turned to Dante, the latter, who had watched the change on his physiognomy, was smiling also. Sir, said Villefort, have you any enemies, at least, that you know? I have enemies, replied Dante. My position is not sufficiently elevated for that. As for my disposition, that is perhaps somewhat too hasty. But I have striven to repress it. I have had ten or twelve sailors under me, and if you question them, they will tell you that they love and respect me, not as a father, for I am too young, but as an elder brother. But you may have excited jealousy. You are about to become captain at nineteen, an elevated post. You are about to marry a pretty girl who loves you, and these two pieces of good fortune may have excited the envy of someone. You are right, 
You know men better than I do, and what you say may possibly be the case, I confess. But if such persons are among my acquaintances, I prefer not to know it, because then I should be forced to hate them. You are wrong. You should always strive to see clearly around you. You seem a worthy young man. I will depart from the strict line of my duty to aid you in discovering the author of this accusation. Here is the paper. Do you know the writing? As he spoke, Villefort drew the letter from his pocket and presented it to Dante. Dante read it. A cloud passed over his brow as he said, No, monsieur, I do not know the writing, and yet it is tolerably plain. Whoever did it writes well. I am very fortunate, added he, looking gratefully at Villefort, to be examined by such a man as you, for this envious person is a real enemy. And by the rapid glance that the young man's eyes shot forth, Villefort saw how much energy lay hid beneath his mildness. Now, said the deputy, answer me frankly, not as a prisoner to a judge, but as one man to another who takes an interest in him, what truth is there in the accusation contained in this anonymous letter? And Villefort threw disdainfully on his desk the letter Dante had just given back to him. None at all. I will tell you the real facts. I swear by my honour as a sailor, by my love for Mercedes, by the life of my father. Speak, monsieur, said Villefort. Then internally, if René could see me, I hope she would be satisfied, and would no longer call me a decapitator. Well, when we quitted Naples, Captain Leclerc was attacked with a brain fever. As we had no doctor on board, and he was so anxious to arrive at Elba, that he would not touch at any other port, his disorder rose to such a height, that at the end of the third day, feeling he was dying, he called me to him. My dear Dante, said he, Swear to perform what I am going to tell you, for it is a matter of the deepest importance. I swear, Captain, replied I. Well, as after my death, the command devolves on you as mate. Assume the command and bear up for the island of Elba. Disembark at Porto Ferraio. Ask for the Grand Marshal. Give him this letter. Perhaps they will give you another letter and charge you with a commission. You will accomplish what I was to have done and derive all the honour and profit from it. I will do it, Captain, but perhaps I shall not be admitted to the Grand Marshal's presence as easily as you expect. Here is a ring that will obtain audience of him and remove every difficulty, said the Captain. At these words he gave me a ring. It was time. Two hours after he was delirious, the next day he died. And what did you do then? What I ought to have done, and what everyone would have done in my place. Everywhere the last requests of a dying man are sacred, but with a sailor the last requests of his superior are commands. I sailed for the island of Elba where I arrived the next day. I ordered everybody to remain on board and went on shore alone. As I had expected, 
I found some difficulty in obtaining access to the Grand Marshal, but I sent the ring and I had received from the captain to him, and was instantly admitted. He questioned me concerning Captain Leclerc's death, and, as the latter had told me, gave me a letter to carry on to a person in Paris. I undertook it, because it was what my captain had bade me do. I landed here, regulated the affairs of the vessel, and hastened to visit my affianced bride, whom I found more lovely than ever. Thanks to Monsieur Morel, all the forms were got over. In a word, I was told, as I told you at my marriage feast, and I should have been married in an hour, and tomorrow I intended to start for Paris, had I not been arrested on this charge, which you as well as I now see to be unjust. Ah, said Villefort, this seems to be the truth. If you have been culpable, it was imprudence, and this imprudence was in obedience to the orders of your captain. I give up this letter you have brought from Elba, and pass your word you will appear should be required, and go and rejoin your friends. I am free then, sir, cried Dante joyfully. Yes, but first give me this letter. You have it already, for it was taken from me, with some others which I see in that packet. Stop a moment, said the deputy, as Dante took his hat and gloves. To whom is it addressed? To Monsieur Noirtier, Rue Coqueron, Paris. Had a thunderbolt fallen into the room, Villefort could not have been more stupefied. He sank into his seat and hastily, turning over the packet, drew forth the fatal letter, at which he glanced with an expression of terror. Monsieur Noirtier, Rue Coqueron, numéro 13, murmured he, growing still paler. Yes, said Dante. Do you know him? No, replied Villefort. A faithful servant of the king does not know conspirators. It is a conspiracy, then? asked Dante, who, after believing himself free, now began to feel a tenfold alarm. I have... However, already told you, sir, I was entirely ignorant of the contents of the letter. Yes, but you know the name of the person to whom it was addressed, said Villefort. I was forced to read the address, to know to whom to give it. Have you shown this letter to anyone? asked Villefort, becoming still more pale. To no one, on my honour. Everybody is ignorant that you are the bearer of a letter from the island of Elba, and addressed to Monsieur Noirtier. Everybody except the person who gave it to me. And that was too much, far too much, murmured Villefort. Villefort's brow darkened more and more. His white lips and clenched teeth filled Dante with apprehension. After reading the letter, Villefort covered his face with his hands. Oh, said Dante timidly, what is the matter? Villefort made no answer, but raised his head at the expiration of a few seconds and again perused the letter. And you say that you are ignorant of the contents of this letter? I give you my word of honour, sir, said Dante. But what is the matter? You are ill. Shall I ring for assistance? Shall I call? No, said Villefort rising hastily. Stay where you are. 
It is for me to give orders here, and not you. Monsieur, replied Dante proudly, it was only to summon assistance for you. I want none. It was a temporary indisposition. Attend to yourself. Answer me. Dante waited, expecting a question, but in vain. Villefort fell back on his chair, passed his hand over his brow, moist with perspiration, and for the third time read the letter. Oh, if he knows the contents of this, murmured he, and that Noirtier is the father of Villefort, I am lost. And he fixed his eyes upon Edmond, as if he would have penetrated his thoughts. Oh, it is impossible to doubt it, cried he suddenly. In heaven's name, cried the unhappy young man, if you doubt me, question me, I will answer you. Villefort made a violent effort, and in a tone he strove to render firm. Sir, said he, I am no longer able, as I had hoped, to restore you immediately to liberty. Before doing so, I must consult the trial justice. What my own feeling is, you already know. Oh, monsieur, cried Dante, you have been rather a friend than a judge. Well, I must detain you some time longer, but I will strive to make it as short as possible. The principal charge against you is this letter, and you see, Villefort approached the fire, cast it in and waited until it was entirely consumed. You see, I destroy it. Oh, exclaimed Dante, you are goodness itself. Listen, continued Villefort, you can now have confidence in me after what I have done. Oh, command, and I will obey. Listen, this is not a command, but advice I give you. Speak, and I will follow your advice. I shall detain you until this evening in the Palais de Justice. Should anyone else interrogate you, say to him what you have said to me, but do not breathe a word of this letter. I promise. It was Villefort who seemed to entreat, and the prisoner who reassured him. You see, continued he, glancing toward the grate, where fragments of burnt paper fluttered in the flames, the letter is destroyed. You and I alone know of its existence. Should you therefore be questioned, deny all knowledge of it. Deny it boldly, and you are saved. Be satisfied, I will deny it. It was the only letter you had? It was. Swear it. I swear it. Villefort rang. A police agent entered. Villefort whispered some words in his ear to which the officer replied by a motion of his head. Follow him, said Villefort to Dante. Dante saluted Villefort and retired. Hardly had the door closed when Villefort threw himself half fainting into a chair. Alas, alas, murmured he, if the procureur himself had been at Marseille, I should have been ruined. This accursed letter would have destroyed all my hopes. Oh, my father, must you pass career always interfere with my successes? Suddenly a light passed over his face. A smile played round his set mouth and his haggard eyes were fixed in thought. This will do, said he. And from this letter, which might have ruined me, I will make my fortune.
now to the work I have in hand. And after having assured himself that the prisoner was gone, the deputy procureur hastened to the house of his betrothed. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Chateau d'If. The commissary of police, as he traversed the antechamber, made a sign to two gendarmes who placed themselves one on Dante's right and the other on his left. A door that communicated with the Palais de Justice was opened and they went through a long range of gloomy corridors, whose appearance might have made even the boldest shudder. The Palais de Justice communicated with the prison, a sombre edifice that from its grated windows looks on the clock tower of the Acoule. After numberless windings, Dante saw a door with an iron wicket. The commissary took up an iron mallet and knocked thrice. Every blow seemed to Dante as if struck on his heart, the door opened, the two gendarmes gently pushed him forward, and the door closed with a loud sound behind him. The air he inhaled was no longer pure, but thick and mephitic. He was in prison. He was conducted to a tolerably neat chamber, but grated and barred, and its appearance, therefore, did not greatly alarm him. Besides, the words of Villefort, who seemed to interest himself so much, resounded still in his ears like a promise of freedom. It was four o'clock when Dante was placed in this chamber. It was, as we have said, the first of March, and the prisoner was soon buried in darkness. The obscurity augmented the acuteness of his hearing. At the slightest sound he rose and hastened to the door, convinced they were about to liberate him, but the sound died away, and Dante sank again into his seat. At last, about ten o'clock, and just as Dante began to despair, steps were heard in the corridor. A key turned in the lock. The bolts creaked, the massy oaken door flew open, and a flood of light from two torches pervaded the apartment. By the torchlight, Dante saw the glittering sabres and carbines of four gendarmes. He had advanced at first, but stopped at the sight of this display of force. "'Are you come here to fetch me?' asked he. "'Yes,' replied the gendarme. "'By the orders of the deputy procureur?' "'I believe so.' The conviction that they came from Monsieur de Villefort relieved all Dante's apprehensions. He advanced calmly and placed himself in the centre of the escort. A carriage waited at the door. The coachman was on the box and a police officer sat beside him. "'Is this carriage for me?' said Dante. It is for you, replied a gendarme. Dante was about to speak, but feeling himself urged forward, and having neither the power nor the intention to resist, he mounted the steps, and was in an instant seated inside between two gendarmes. The two others took their places opposite, and the carriage rolled heavily over the stones. The prisoner glanced at the windows. They were grated, he had changed his prison for another that was conveying him he knew not whither. Through the grating, however, Dante saw they were passing through the Rue Casserie and by the Rue Saint-Laurent and the Rue Tarami to the port. Soon he saw the lights of La Consigne. 
The carriage stopped. The officer descended, approached the guardhouse. A dozen soldiers came out and formed themselves in order. Dante saw the reflection of their muskets by the light of the lamps on the quay. Can all this force be summoned on my account? thought he. The officer opened the door, which was locked, and without speaking a word, answered Dante's question, for he saw between the ranks of the soldiers a passage formed from the carriage to the port. The two gendarmes, who were opposite to him, descended first. Then he was ordered to alight, and the gendarme on each side of him followed his example. They advanced towards a boat, which a custom-house officer held by a chain near the quay. <coughs> the soldiers looked at Dante with an air of stupid curiosity. In an instant, he was placed in the stern-sheets of the boat, between the gendarmes, while the officer stationed himself at the bow. A shove sent the boat adrift, and four sturdy oarsmen impelled it rapidly towards the pilon. At a shout from the boat, the chain that closes the mouth of the port was lowered, and in a second they were, as Dante knew, in the Frioul and outside the inner harbour. The prisoner's first feeling was of joy at again breathing the pure air, for air is freedom. But he soon sighed, for he passed before La Reserve, where he had that morning been so happy, and now, through the open windows, came the laughter and revelry of a ball. Dante folded his hands, raised his eyes to heaven, and prayed fervently. The boat continued her voyage. They had passed the Tête de Morte, were now off the Anse du Pharaoh, and about to double the battery. This manoeuvre was incomprehensible to Dante. "'Whither are you taking me?' asked he. "'You will soon know. "'But still, we are forbidden to give you an explanation.' Dante, trained in discipline, knew that nothing would be more absurd than to question subordinates, who were forbidden to reply, and so he remained silent. The most vague and wild thoughts passed through his mind. The boat they were in could not make a long voyage. There was no vessel at anchor outside the harbour. He thought perhaps they were going to leave him on some distant point. He was not bound, nor had they made any attempt to handcuff him. This seemed a good augury. Besides, had not the deputy, who had been so kind to him, told him that provided he did not pronounce the dreaded name of Noirtier, he had nothing to apprehend? Had not Villefort, in his presence, destroyed the fatal letter, the only proof against him? He waited silently, striving to pierce through the darkness. They had left the Ile Ratonneau, where the lighthouse stood on the right, and were now opposite the Point des Catalans. It seemed to the prisoner that he could distinguish a feminine form on the beach, for it was there Mercedes dwelt. How was it that a presentiment did not warn Mercedes that her lover was within three hundred yards of her? One light alone was visible, and Dante saw that it came from Mercedes's chamber. Mercedes was the only one awake in the whole settlement. A loud cry could be heard by her. But pride restrained him, and he did not utter it. What would his guards think if they heard him shout like a madman? He remained silent, his eyes fixed upon the light. The boat went on, but the prisoner thought only of Mercedes. An intervening elevation of land hid the light. Dante turned, and perceived that they had got out to sea. 
While he had been absorbed in thought, they had shipped their oars and hoisted sail. The boat was now moving with the wind. In spite of his repugnance to address the guards, Dante turned to the nearest gendarme and, taking his hand, Comrade, said he, I adjure you, as a Christian and a soldier, to tell me where we are going. I am Captain Dante, a loyal Frenchman, thought accused of treason. Tell me where you are conducting me, and I promise, on, you, on my honour, I will submit to my fate. The gendarme looked irresolutely at his companion, who returned for answer a sign that said, I see no great harm in telling him now. And the gendarme replied, You are a native of Marseille and a sailor, and yet you do not know where you are going? On my honour, I have no idea. Have you no idea whatever? None at all. That is impossible. I swear to you, it is true. Tell me, I entreat. But my orders... Your orders do not forbid your telling me what I must know in ten minutes, in half an hour or an hour. You see, I cannot escape, even if I intended. Unless you are blind, or have never been outside the harbour, you must know. I do not. Look round you, then. Dante rose and looked forward, when he saw rise within a hundred yards of him the black and frowning rock on which stands the Chateau d'If. This gloomy fortress, which has for more than three hundred years furnished food for so many wild legends, seemed to Dante like a scaffold to a malefactor. The Chateau d'If, cried he, what are we going there for? The gendarme smiled. I'm not going there to be imprisoned, said Dante. It is only used for political prisoners. I have committed no crime. Are there any magistrates or judges at the Chateau d'If? There are only, said the gendarme, a governor, a garrison, turnkeys, and good thick walls. Come, come, do not look so astonished, or you will make me think you are laughing at me in return for my good nature. Dante pressed the gendarme's hand as though he would crush it. You think then, said he, that I am taken to the Chateau d'If to be imprisoned there? It is probable, but there is no occasion to squeeze so hard. Without any inquiry? Without any formality? All the formalities have been gone through. The inquiry is already made. And so, in spite of Monsieur de Villefort's promises? I do not know what Monsieur de Villefort promised you, said the gendarme, but I know we are taking you to the Chateau d'If. But what are you doing? Help, comrade, help! By a rapid movement, which the gendarme's practised eye had perceived, Dante sprang forward to precipitate himself into the sea, but four vigorous arms seized him as his feet quitted the bottom of the boat. He fell back, cursing with rage. Good, said the gendarme, placing his knee on his chest. Believe soft-spoken gentlemen again. Aki, my friend, I have disobeyed my first order, but I will not disobey the second, and if you move... I will blow your brains out, and he levelled his carbine at Dante, who felt the muzzle against his temple. For a moment, the idea of struggling crossed his mind, and of so ending the unexpected evil that had overtaken him. But he bethought of Monsieur de Villefort's promise, and, besides, death in a boat from the hand of a gendarme seemed too terrible. 
He remained motionless, but gnashing his teeth and wringing his hands with fury. At this moment the boat came to a landing with a violent shock. One of the sailors leapt on shore. A cord creaked as it ran through a pulley, and Dante guessed they were at the end of the voyage, and that they were mooring the boat. His guards, taking him by the arms and coat collar, forced him to rise, and dragged him towards the steps that led to the gate of the fortress, while the police officer, carrying a musket with fixed bayonet, followed behind. Dante made no resistance. He was like a man in a dream. He saw soldiers drawn up on the embankment. He knew vaguely that he was ascending a flight of steps. He was conscious that he passed through a door, and that the door closed behind him. But all this indistinctly as through a mist. He did not even see the ocean, that terrible barrier against freedom, which the prisoners look upon with utter despair. They halted for a minute, during which he strove to collect his thoughts. He looked around. He was in a court surrounded by high walls. He heard the measured tread of sentinels, and as they passed before the light, he saw the barrels of their muskets shine. They waited upwards of ten minutes. Certain Dante could not escape. The gendarme released him. They seemed awaiting orders. The orders came. Where is the prisoner? said a voice. Here, replied the gendarme. Let him follow me. I will take him to his cell. Go, said the gendarme, thrusting Dante forward. The prisoner followed his guide, who led him into a room almost underground, whose bare and reeking walls seemed as though impregnated with tears. A lamp, placed on a stool, illumined the apartment faintly, and showed Dante the features of his conductor, an under-jailer, ill-clothed and of sullen appearance. "'Here is your chamber for to-night,' said he. "'It is late, and the governor is asleep. "'Tomorrow, perhaps, he may change you. "'In the meantime, there is bread, water, and fresh straw, "'and that is all a prisoner can wish for. "'Good night.' "'And before Dante could open his mouth, "'before he had noticed where the jailer placed his bread or the water, "'before he had glanced towards the corner where the straw was, "'the jailer disappeared, taking with him the lamp and closing the door, leaving stamped upon the prisoner's mind the dim reflection of the dripping walls of his dungeon. Dante was alone in darkness, and in silence, cold as the shadows that he felt breathe on his burning forehead. With the first dawn of day, the jailer returned, with orders to leave Dante where he was. He found the prisoner in the same position, as if fixed there, his eyes swollen with weeping. He had passed the night standing and without sleep. The jailer advanced. Dante appeared not to perceive him. He touched him on the shoulder. Edmond started. Have you not slept? said the jailer. I do not know, replied Dante. The jailer stared. Are you hungry? continued he. I do not know. Do you wish for anything? I wish to see the governor. The jailer shrugged his shoulders and left the chamber. Dante followed him with his eyes and stretched forth his hands towards the open door. But the door closed. All his emotion then burst forth. 
He cast himself on the ground, weeping bitterly, and asking himself what crime he had committed that he was thus punished. The day passed thus. He scarcely tasted food, but walked around and round the cell like a wild beast in its cage. One thought in particular tormented him, namely that during his journey hither he had sat so still, whereas he might a dozen times have plunged into the sea, and, thanks to his powers of swimming, for which he was famous, have gained the shore, concealed himself until the arrival of a Genoese or Spanish vessel, escaped to Spain or Italy, where Mercedes and his father could have joined him. He had no fears as to how he should live. Good seamen are welcome everywhere. He spoke Italian like a Tuscan, and Spanish like a Castilian. He would have been free and happy with Mercedes and his father, whereas he was now confined in the Chateau d'If, that impregnable fortress. Ignorant of the future destiny of his father and Mercedes, and all this because he had trusted to Villefort's promise. The thought was maddening, and Dante threw himself furiously down on his straw. The next morning, at the same hour, the jailer came again. Well, said the jailer, are you more reasonable today? Dante made no reply. Come, cheer up. Is there anything that I can do for you? I wish to see the governor. I have already told you it was impossible. Why so? Because it is against prison rules, and prisoners must not even ask for it. What is allowed, then? Better fare, if you pay for it, books and leave to walk about. I do not want books. I am satisfied with my food and do not care to walk about. But I wish to see the governor. If you worry me by repeating the same thing, I will not bring you any more to eat. Well then, said Edmond, if you do not, I shall die of hunger, that is all. The jailer saw by his tone he would be happy to die, and as every prisoner is worth ten sous a day to his jailer, he replied in a more subdued tone, What you ask is impossible, but if you are very well behaved, you will be allowed to walk about and some day you will meet the governor, and if he chooses to reply, that is his affair. But, asked Dante, how long shall I have to wait? Ah, a month, six months, a year. It is too long a time. I wish to see him at once. Ah, said the jailer, do not always brood over what is impossible, or you will be mad in a fortnight. You think so? Yes, we have an instance here. It was by always offering a million of francs to the governor for his liberty that an abbe became mad, who was in this chamber before you. How long has he left it? Two years. Was he liberated then? No, he was put in a dungeon. Listen, said Dante, I am not an abbe, I am not mad. Perhaps I shall be, but at present, unfortunately, I am not. I'll make you another offer. What is that? I do not offer you a million, because I have it not. But I will give you a hundred crowns if, the first time you go to Marseille, you will seek out a young girl named Mercedes at the Catalan, and give her two lines from me. If I took them and were detected, 
I should lose my place, which is worth 2,000 francs a year, so that I should be a great fool to run such a risk for 300. Well, said Dante, mark this. If you refuse at least to tell Mercedes I am here, I will some day hide myself behind the door, and when you enter, I will dash out your brains with this stool. Threats, cried the jailer, retreating and putting himself on the defensive. You are certainly going mad. The abbe began like you, and in three days you will be like him, mad enough to tie up. But fortunately there are dungeons here. Dante whirled the stool round his head. All right, all right, said the jailer. All right, since you will have it so, I will send word to the governor. Very well, returned Dante, dropping the stool and sitting on it as if he were in reality mad. The jailer went out and returned in an instant with a corporal and four soldiers. By the governor's orders, said he, conduct the prisoner to the tier beneath. To the dungeon, then, said the corporal. Yes, we must put the madman with the madmen. The soldiers seized Dante, who followed passively. He descended fifteen steps, and the door of a dungeon was opened, and he was thrust in. The door closed, and Dante advanced with outstretched hands until he touched the wall. He then sat down in the corner until his eyes became accustomed to the darkness. The jailer was right. Dante wanted but little of being utterly mad. End of chapter 8「Of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Evening of the Betrothal. Villefort had, as we have said, hastened back to Madame de Saint Méran's in the Place du Grand Cour, and on entering the house found that the guests whom he had left at table were taking coffee in the salon. Rene was, with all the rest of the company, anxiously awaiting him and his entrance was followed by a general exclamation. Well, decapitator, guardian of the state, royalist, brutus, what is the matter? said one. Speak out. Are we threatened with a fresh reign of terror? asked another. Has the Corsican ogre broken loose? cried a third. Marquise, said Villefort, approaching his future mother-in-law, I request your pardon for thus leaving you. Will the Marquis honour me by a few moments' private conversation? Ah, it is a really serious matter, then, asked the Marquis, remarking the cloud on Villefort's brow. So serious that I must take leave of you for a few days, so, added he, turning to René. Judge for yourself, if it be not important. You are not going to leave us, cried René, unable to hide her emotion at this unexpected announcement. Alas, returned Villefort, I must. Where, then, are you going? asked the Marquise. That, madame, is an official secret, but if you have any commissions for Paris, a friend of mine is going there tonight, and will with pleasure undertake them. The guests looked at each other. You wish to speak to me alone? said the Marquis. Yes, let us go to the library, please. The Marquis took his arm, and they left the stallion. 
"'Well,' asked he as soon as they were by themselves, "'tell me what it is.' "'An affair of the greatest importance that demands my immediate presence in Paris. "'Now excuse the indiscretion, Marquis, but have you any landed property?' All my fortune is in the funds, seven or eight hundred thousand francs. Then sell out, sell out, Marquis, or you will lose it all. How can I sell out here? You have a broker, have you not? Yes. Then give me a letter to him, and tell him to sell out without an instant's delay. Perhaps even now I shall arrive too late. The juice, you say, replied the Marquis. Let us lose no time, then and sitting down he wrote a letter to his broker, ordering him to sell out at the market price. And now then, said Villefort, placing the letter in his pocket-book, I must have another. To whom? To the king. To the king? Yes. I dare not write to his majesty. I do not ask you to write to his majesty, but ask Monsieur de Salvieux to do so. I want a letter that will enable me to reach the king's presence, without all the formalities of demanding an audience. That would occasion a loss of precious time. But address yourself to the keeper of the seals. He has the right of entry at the Tuileries and can procure your audience at any hour of the day or night. Doubtless, but there is no occasion to divide the honours of my discovery with him. The keeper would leave me in the background and take all the glory to himself. I tell you, Marquis, my fortune is made if I only reach the Tuileries the first, for the king will not forget the service I do him. In that case, go and get ready. I will call Salvieux and make him write the letter. Be as quick as possible. I must be on the road in quarter of an hour. Tell your coachman to stop at the door. You will present my excuses to the Marquise and Mademoiselle René, whom I leave on such a day with great regret. You will find them both here, and can make your farewells in person. A thousand thanks. And now for the letter. The Marquis rang. A servant entered. Say to the Comte de Salvieux that I would like to see him. Now then, go, said the Marquis. I shall be gone only a few moments. Vifor hastily quitted the apartment, but reflecting that the sight of the deputy procureur running through the streets would be enough to throw the whole city into confusion, he resumed his ordinary pace. At his door he perceived a figure in the shadow that seemed to wait for him. It was Mercedes, who, hearing no news of her lover, had come unobserved to inquire after him. As Villefort drew near, she advanced and stood before him, Dante had spoken of Mercedes, and Villefort instantly recognised her. Her beauty and high bearing surprised him, and when she inquired what had become of her lover, it seemed to him that she was the judge and he the accused. "'The young man you speak of,' said Villefort abruptly, "'is a great criminal, and I can do nothing for him, mademoiselle.' Mercedes burst into tears, and as Villefort strove to pass her, again addressed him. But at least tell me where he is, that I may know whether he is alive or dead, said she. I do not know. He is no longer in my hands, replied Villefort. And, desirous of putting an end to the interview, 
He pushed by her and closed the door, as if to exclude the pain he felt. But remorse is not thus banished. Like Virgil's wounded hero, he carried the arrow in his wound and arrived at the salon. Villefort uttered a sigh that was almost a sob and sank into a chair. Then the first pangs of an unending torture seized upon his heart. The man he sacrificed to his ambition, that innocent victim immolated on the altar of his father's faults, appeared to him pale and threatening, leading his affianced bride by the hand and bringing with him remorse, not such as the ancients figured furious and terrible, but that slow and consuming agony whose pangs are intensified from hour to hour up to the very moment of death. Then he had a moment's hesitation. He had frequently called for capital punishment on criminals, and owing to his irresistible eloquence they had been condemned, and yet the slightest shadow of remorse had never clouded Villefort's brow, because they were guilty, at least he believed so. But here was an innocent man whose happiness he had destroyed. In this case, he was not the judge, but the executioner. As he thus reflected, he felt the sensation we have described and which had hitherto been unknown to him arise in his bosom and fill him with vague apprehensions. It is thus that a wounded man trembles instinctively at the approach of the finger to his wound until it be healed. But Villefort's was one of those that never close, or if they do, only close to reopen more agonising than ever. If at this moment the sweet voice of René had sounded in his ears, pleading for mercy, or the fair Mercedes had entered and said, In the name of God, I conjure you to restore my affianced husband, his cold and trembling hands would have signed his release. But no voice broke the stillness of the chamber, and the door was opened only by Villefort's valet, who came to tell him that the travelling carriage was in readiness. Villefort arose, or rather sprang, from his chair, hastily opened one of the drawers of his desk, emptied all the gold it contained into his pocket, stood motionless an instant, his hand pressed to his head, muttered a few inarticulate sounds, and then, perceiving that his servant had placed his cloak on his shoulders, he sprang into the carriage, ordering the postilions to drive to Monsieur de Saint-Méron's. The hapless Dante was doomed. As the Marquis had promised, Villefort found the Marquise and René in waiting. He started when he saw René, for he fancied she was again about to plead for Dante. Alas, her emotions were wholly personal. She was thinking only of Villefort's departure. She loved Villefort, and he left her at the moment he was about to become her husband. Villefort knew not when he should return, and René, far from pleading for Dante, hated the man whose crime separated her from her lover. Meanwhile, what of Mercedes? She had met Fernand at the corner of the Rue de la Loge. She had returned to the Catalans, and had despairingly cast herself on her couch. Fernand, kneeling by her side, took her hand and covered it with kisses that Mercedes did not even feel. She passed the night thus. The lamp went out for want of oil, but she paid no heed to the darkness, and dawn came, but she knew not that it was day. 
grief had made her blind to all but one object. That was Edmond. Ah, you are there, she said at length, turning towards Fernand. I have not quieted you since yesterday, returned Fernand sorrowfully. Monsieur Morel had not readily given up the fight. He learned that Dante had been taken to prison, and he had gone to all his friends and the influential persons of the city. But the report was already in circulation that Dante was arrested as a Bonapartist agent, and as the most sanguine looked upon any attempt of Napoleon to remount the throne as impossible, he met nothing but refusal, and had returned home in despair, declaring that the matter was serious, and that nothing more could be done. Caderousse was equally restless and uneasy, but instead of seeking, like Monsieur Morel, to aid Dante, he had shut himself up with two bottles of black currant brandy in the hope of drowning reflection. But he did not succeed, and became too intoxicated to fetch any more drink, and yet not so intoxicated as to forget what had happened. With his elbows on the table, he sat between the two empty bottles, while spectres danced in the light of the unsnuffed candle, spectres such as Hoffman strews over his punch-drenched pages like black, fantastic dust. Danglars alone was content and joyous. He had got rid of an enemy and made his own situation on the pharaoh and secure. Danglars was one of those men born with a pen behind the ear and an inkstand in place of a heart. Everything with him was multiplication or subtraction. The life of a man was to him of far less value than a numeral, especially when, by taking it away, he could increase the sum total of his own desires. He went to bed at his usual hour and slept in peace. Villefort, after having received Monsieur de Salvieux's letter, embraced René, kissed the Marquis's hand, and, shaken that of the Marquis, started for Paris, along the X road. Old Dante was dying with anxiety to know what had become of Edmond, but we know very well what had become of Edmond. End of chapter 9「Chapter 10 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. The King's Closet at the Tuileries. We will leave Villefort on the road to Paris, travelling, thanks to trebled fees, with all speed and passing through two or three apartments, enter at the Tuileries the little room with the arched window so well known as having been the favourite closet of Napoleon and Louis XVIII, and now of Louis-Philippe. There, seated before a walnut table, he had brought with him from Hartwell, and to which, from one of those fancies not uncommon to great people, he was particularly attached. The king, Louis XVIII, was carelessly listening to a man of fifty or fifty-two years of age, with grey hair, aristocratic bearing, and exceedingly gentlemanly attire, and meanwhile making a marginal note in a volume of Griffiths's rather inaccurate but much sought-after edition of Horace, a work which was much indebted to the sagacious observations of the philosophical monarch. "'You say, sir,' 
said the king. That I am exceedingly disquieted, sire. Really? Have you had a vision of the seven fat kine and the seven lean kine? No, sire. For that would only be token for us seven years of plenty and seven years of sour scarcity. And when a king as full of foresight as your majesty, scarcity is not a thing to be feared. Then of what other scourge are you afraid, my dear Blacker? Sire, I have every reason to believe that a storm is brewing in the south. Well, my dear duke, replied Louis Eighteenth. I think you are wrongly informed, and know positively that, on the contrary, it is very fine weather in that direction. Man of ability as he was, Louis Eighteenth liked a pleasant jest. Sire, continued Monsieur de Blacas, if it only be to reassure a faithful servant, will your majesty send into Languedoc, Provence and Dauphine, trusty men, will bring you back a faithful report as to the feeling in these three provinces. Caninus Sordis, replied the king, continuing the annotations in his Horace. Sire, replied the courtier, laughing in order that he might seem to comprehend the quotation. Your majesty may be perfectly right in relying on the good feeling of France, but I fear I am not altogether wrong in dreading some desperate attempt. By whom? By Bonaparte, or at least by his adherents. My dear Blacker, said the king, you with your alarms prevent me from working. And you, sire, prevent me from sleeping with your security. Wait, my dear sir. Wait a moment, for I have such a delightful note on the pastor Quam Traheret. Wait, and I will listen to you afterwards. There was a brief pause during which Louis Eighteenth wrote, in a hand as small as possible, another note on the margin of his Horace, and then, looking at the Duke with the air of a man who thinks he has an idea of his own, while he is only commenting upon the idea of another, said, Go on, my dear Duke, go on, I listen. Sire, said Blacard, who had for a moment the hope of sacrificing Villefort to his own profit, I am compelled to tell you that these are not mere rumours destitute of foundation which thus disquiet me, but a serious-minded man deserving all my confidence and charged by me to watch over the South, the Duke hesitated as he pronounced these words, has arrived by post to tell me that a great peril threatens the king, and so I hasten to you, sire. Mala ducis avi domum, continued Louis XVIII, still annotating. Does your majesty wish me to drop the subject? By no means, my dear duke, but just stretch out your hand. Which? Whichever you please, there to the left. Here, sire. I tell you the left, and you are looking to the right. I mean on my left. Yes, there. You will find yesterday's report of the Minister of Police, but here is Mr. Dondre himself, and Monsieur Dondre, announced by the Chamberlain-in-waiting, entered. Come in, said Louis Eighteenth, with repressed smile. 
Uh, come in, Baron, and tell the Duke all you know. The latest news of Monsieur de Bonaparte. Uh, do not conceal anything, however serious. Let us see. The island of Elba is a volcano, and we may expect to have issuing thence flaming and bristling warbella, horrida bella. Monsieur Dandre leaned very respectfully on the back of a chair with his two hands and said, Has your majesty perused yesterday's rapport? Yes, yes, but tell the duke himself, who cannot find anything, what the report contains, and give him the particulars of what the usurper is doing in his islet. Oh, monsieur, said the baron to the duke, all the servants of his majesty must approve of the latest intelligence which we have from the island of Elba, Bonaparte. Monsieur Dandre looked at Louis Eighteenth, who, employed in writing a note, did not even raise his head. Bonaparte, continued the baron, is mortally wearied and passes all days in watching his miners at work at Porto Longone. And scratches himself for amusement, added the king. Uh, scratches himself, inquired the duke. What does your majesty mean? Yes, indeed, my dear duke. Did you forget that this great man... This hero, this demigod, is attacked with a malady of the skin, which worries him to death, a prurigo. And moreover, my dear duke, continued the minister of police, we are almost assured that in a very short time the usurper will be insane. Insane? Raving mad. His head becomes weaker. Sometimes he weeps bitterly, sometimes laughs boisterously, at other times he passes hours on the seashore, flinging stones in the water, and when the flint makes a duck and drake five or six times, he appears as delighted as if he had gained another Marengo or Austerlitz. Now, you must agree that these are indubitable symptoms of insanity. Or of wisdom, my dear Baron, or of wisdom said Louis Eighteenth, laughing. <laughs> the greatest captains of antiquity amuse themselves by casting pebbles into the ocean. See Plutarch's life of Scipio Africanus. Monsieur de Blacas pondered deeply between the confident monarch and the truthful minister. Villefort, who did not choose to reveal the whole secret, lest another should reap all the benefit of the disclosure, had yet communicated enough to cause him the greatest uneasiness. Well, well, Dandre, said Louis Eighteenth. Blacas is not yet convinced. Let us proceed, therefore, to the usurper's conversion. The minister of police bowed. The usurper's conversion, murmured the duke, looking at the king, and Dandre, who spoke alternatively like Virgil shepherds. The usurper converted... Decidedly, my dear duke. In what way converted? To good principles. Tell him all about it, baron. Why, this is the way of it, said the minister, with the gravest air in the world. Napoleon lately had a review, and as two or three of his old veterans expressed a desire to return to France, he gave them their dismissal and exhorted them to serve the good king. These were his own words, 
Of that I am certain. Well, Blaca, what think you of this? inquired the king triumphantly, and pausing for a moment from the voluminous scholiast before him. I say, sire, that the minister of police is greatly deceived, or I am, and as it is impossible it can be the minister of police, as he has the guardianship of the safety and honour of your majesty, it is probable that I am in error. However, sire, if I might advise, your majesty will interrogate the person of whom I spoke to you, and I will urge your majesty to do him this honour. Most willingly, duke, under your auspices I will receive any person you please, but you must not expect me to be too confiding. Baron, have you any report more recent than this dated the 20th of February? This is the 4th of March. No, sire, but I am hourly expecting one. It may have arrived since I left my office. Go thither, and if there be none, well, well, continued Louis Eighteenth. make one. That is the usual way, is it not? And the king laughed facetiously. Oh, sire, replied the minister, we have no occasion to invent any. Every day our desks are loaded with most circumstantial denunciations, coming from hosts of people who hope for some return for services which they seek to render, but cannot. They trust to fortune and rely upon some unexpected event in some way to justify their predictions. Well, sir, go, said Louis Eighteenth, and remember that I am waiting for you. I will but go and return, sire. I shall be back in ten minutes. And I, sire, said Monsieur de Blacas, will go and find my messenger. Wait, uh, sir, wait, said Louis Eighteenth. Really, Monsieur de Blacas, I must change your armorial bearings. I will give you an eagle with outstretched wings, holding in its claws a prey which tries in vain to escape, and bearing this device, Tenax. Sire, I listen, said de Blacas, biting his nails with impatience. I wish to consult you on this passage. Molly, Fugiens, and Helitu. You know it refers to a stag flying from a wolf. Are you not a sportsman and a great wolf hunter? Well then, what do you think of the Molly and Helitu? Admirable, sire. But my messenger is like the stag you refer to, for he has posted two hundred and twenty leagues in scarcely three days, which is undergoing a great fatigue and anxiety, my dear duke, when we have a telegraph which transmits messages in three or four hours, and that without getting in the least out of breath. Oh, sire, you recompense but badly this poor young man, who has come so far, and with so much ardour, to give your majesty useful information, if only for the sake of Monsieur de Salvieux, who recommends him to me, I entreat your majesty to receive him graciously. Monsieur de Selvieux, my brother's chamberlain. Yes, sire. He is at Marseille, and writes me thence. Does he speak to you of this conspiracy? No, but strongly recommends Monsieur de Villefort, and begs me to present him to your majesty. Monsieur de Villefort, 
cried the king. Is the messenger's name Monsieur de Villefort? Yes, sir. And he comes from Marseille? In person. Why did you not mention his name at once? replied the king, betraying some uneasiness. Sire, I thought his name was unknown to your majesty. No, no, Blackard. He is a man of strong and elevated understanding, ambitious too, and pardieu, you know his father's name? His father? Yes, Noirtier. Noirtier the Girondin? Noirtier the Senator? He himself. And your majesty has employed the son of such a man? Blacquin, my friend, you have but limited comprehension. I told you Villefort was ambitious. And to attain his ambition, Villefort would sacrifice everything, even his father. Then, sire, may I present him? This instant, duke, where is he? Waiting below, in my carriage. Seek him at once. I hasten to do so. The duke left the royal presence with the speed of a young man. His really sincere royalism made him youthful again. Louis XVIII remained alone, and turning his eyes on his half-opened Horace, muttered, Justum et tanacem probositi virum. Monsieur de Blacard returned as speedily as he had departed, but in the antechamber he was forced to appeal to the king's authority. Villefort's dusty garb, his costume, which was not of courtly cut, excited the susceptibility of Monsieur de Breze, who was all astonishment at finding that this young man had the audacity to enter before the king in such attire. The duke, however, overcame all difficulties with a word, His Majesty's Order, and in spite of the protestations which the Master of Ceremonies made for the honour of his office and principles, Villefort was introduced. The king was seated in the same place where the duke had left him. On opening the door, Villefort found himself facing him, and the young magistrate's first impulse was to pause. "'Come in, Monsieur de Villefort,' said the king. "'Come in,' Villefort bowed and, advancing a few steps, waited until the king should interrogate him. "'Monsieur de Villefort,' said Louis Eighteenth, "'the Duke de Blacas assures me you have some interesting information to communicate.' "'Sire, the Duke is right, and I believe your Majesty will think it equally important. "'In the first place, and before everything else, sir, "'is the news as bad, in your opinion, as I am asked to believe?' Sire, I believe it to be most urgent, but I hope for the speed I have used that it is not irreparable. Speak as fully as you please, sir, said the king, who began to give way to the emotion which had showed itself in Blacard's face and affected Villefort's voice. Speak, sir, and pray begin at the beginning. I like order in everything. Sire, said Villefort, I will render a faithful report to your majesty, but I must entreat your forgiveness if my anxiety leads to some obscurity in my language. A glance at the king after his this discreet and subtle exordium assured Villefort of the benignity of his august auditor, and he went on. Sire, I have come as rapidly to Paris as possible 
to inform your majesty that i have discovered in the exercise of my duties not a commonplace and insignificant plot such as is every day got up in the lower ranks of the people and in the army but an actual conspiracy a storm which menaces no less than your majesty's throne sire the usurper is arming three ships he meditates some project which however mad is yet perhaps terrible at this moment he will have left elba to go whither i know not but assuredly to attempt a landing either at naples or on the coast of tuscany or perhaps on the shores of france your majesty is well aware that the sovereign of the island of elba has maintained his relations with italy and france i am sir said the king much agitated and recently we have had information that the bonapartist clubs have had meetings in the rue saint jacques but proceed i beg of you how did you obtain these details sire they are the results of an examination which i have made of a man of marseilles whom i have watched for some time and arrested on the day of my departure this person a sailor of turbulent character and whom i suspected of bonapartism has been secretly to the island of elba there he saw the grand marshal who charged him with an oral message to a bonapartist in paris whose name i could not extract from him but this mission was to prepare men's minds for a return it is the man who says this sire a return which will soon occur and where is this man in prison sir sire and the matter seems serious to you so serious sire that when the circumstance surprised me in the midst of a family festival on the very day of my betrothal i left my bride and friends postponing everything that i might hasten to lay at your majesty's feet the fears which impressed me and the assurance of my devotion true said louis eighteenth was there not a marriage engagement between you and mademoiselle de saint meran daughter of one of your majesty's most faithful servants yes yes but let us talk of this plot monsieur de villefort sire i fear it is more than a plot i fear it is a conspiracy a conspiracy in these times said louis eighteenth smiling is a thing very easy to meditate but more difficult to conduct to an end inasmuch as re-established so recently on the throne of our ancestors we have our eyes open at once upon the past the present and the future for the last ten months my ministers have redoubled their vigilance in order to watch the shore of the mediterranean if bonaparte landed at naples the whole coalition would be on foot before he could even reach piomono if he landed in tuscany he would be in an unfriendly territory if he landed in france it must be with a handful of men and the result of that would be easily foretold execrated as he is by the population take courage sir but at the same time rely on our royal gratitude ah here is monsieur dondre cried de blacas at this instant the minister of police appeared at the door pale trembling and as if ready to faint
Villefort was about to retire, but Monsieur de Blacas, taking his hand, restrained him. End of chapter 10